We've had Chris Thrall on before. You loved his story. Commando from the UK ends up working with the Hong Kong Triad Mafia. And in part one, and please, if you've not seen part one, it is, the link is at the top of the description box below this video. Chris described his journey through the military into crystal meth psychosis and the extreme ups and downs he went through in his life to lead to him clicking up with the Triad Mafia. Chris has got two books out. We've got Eating Smoke and 40 Nights, available worldwide on Amazon, Kindle and Paperback, and he's going to work in on the audiobook here soon. Chris also has his own YouTube channel, and a lot of his videos about military stories and protocol have been getting some good views recently. So if you would go down there and click over to his channel and check his other stuff out and support him, we would appreciate that. And please subscribe as well, because um, we really appreciate him coming all this bloody way to the studio and spending time with us and telling us his stories. So the last podcast left off with you clicking up with a triad. And we had the girl that died. Well, she was almost going to die. And then you intervened and they were like, she's worthless. Just let her die, basically. But we were like kind of building up to you getting more involved in the triad stuff. Yeah. I mean, I should point out, Sean, as I always do, I was never a triad. That's not really what my book's about. My book is about a young man who left the Marines thinking he had life sussed, as you do when, you, when you're young, you know. I think this resonates with you, right? And, you know, the demons of a damaged childhood came back. They caught up with me, and everyone has to pay the piper. I just unfortunately paid the piper while working as a nightclub doorman in a nightclub that happened to be run by the 14K. But And for people who are not familiar with your first podcast or the 14K, can you just explain who they are? Yeah, so the Triads are an ancient group. They go back thousands of years. Originally, they were united in the underworld to fight against um, corrupt dynasties, right? So your Qing... Don't somebody don't correct me here, but you know, like your Qing dynasty, this kind of thing. They're putting out laws that are suppressing the peasants, this kind of thing. And and, and I guess you could say it was a peasant revolt. You'll hear them referred to as the brothers of the marsh, because originally they would meet in the marshlands um, to hold their secret meetings. And like all good things, it started as a benevolent organization for the people. They obviously um, adopted their secret hand signs and methods of covert communication so they wouldn't be discovered and obviously put to death. Fast forward to modern day, like I say, all good things <laughs> kind of turn, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So now it's more an inter international crime organization. Um, it used to be about extortion, prostitution, racketeering, uh, drug selling and drug smuggling, this kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to make an educated guess here. It's more about now 
How can they swindle the stock market, invest in business? I mean, the, crime has changed, isn't it? Well, what with CCTV cameras, it's not like you can run up to someone in the street and start chopping them with a butcher's blade, which is the traditional uh, triad form of revenge. Drug trafficking is the biggest profits for criminal organizations presently. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also you've got things like facial recognition. So what I'm trying to say is I think the street level crime is, is naturally going to come down, right? And they're going to move their operations into more secure, more profitable areas. And the triad, what years were you involved with them? I was in Hong Kong in 95 to 96. And you described how you got involved with them in the previous podcast. Did you really understand who they were at that point? No. I So I rocked up in this nightclub. As I think I said before, I was homeless. Or I think I just sold my, my first Rolex, which was a little gift I bought myself after the Northern Ireland conflict, after serving in the Northern Ireland conflict. And I used my savings that I made there to buy this watch that I was... Um, I was looking at, I, I just want to say I was looking at it because it's just a piece of class, the Rolex Oyster. It wasn't about, you know, having a flashy watch. Although, you know, I was, what, back when I bought it, I was 19, maybe 20. So there was a bit of that. And yeah, in Hong Kong, I had to go into a pawn shop, hock my watch. I got a flat, an apart, uh, apartment's too grand. It was a really crappy flat on the top floor of an aging tenement in the back streets of Wan Chai. Wan Chai is Hong Kong's uh, nightclub district, gangland district, red light district, right? And uh, so there, I've just, just got this flat and I wandered into the nightclub to see if my friend there, Glenn, who was the doorman, had any idea where I could get work. I kind of burned my bridges quite, you know, in hindsight, a lot of which was to do with being chronically addicted to crystal meth at this point. Unbeknown to me, I'm in clinical psychosis, which is maybe not apparent to you guys sat here, but it's this internal dialogue that's going on in my head. And it's this... Um, mix of chemicals in my brain can you say that's that's making me interpret things with kind of a conspiratorial slant but of course you say conspiratorial I'm, I'm also in working in a nightclub for one of the biggest conspiracies in the world which is the hong kong triads so i wandered in to see glenn he wasn't there the guy at the bar pointed me at this Kind of unassuming chap, dressed in a black suit, black tie. Um, had these kind of cross eyes, which gave him a bit of a distinct look, shall we say. <laughs> and uh, so I said to him, where's, where's Glenn? Oh, Glenn gone Thailand. Oh, okay. He said, Dorman, you can do Dorman job? I said, yeah, yeah, I can, I can do the Dorman job. He said, okay, start here tomorrow night. Eight o'clock. Wow. That was just music to my ears, Sean. You know, I'd gone from being homeless and sitting on my backpack or my Bergen, as we say in the Marines, 
on uh, Nathan Road. I sat there watching all these BMWs fly by and, and Mercedes. Hong Kong has the most Rolls Royces per capita in, in the world, right? And I'm sat looking at these guys thinking, someone just stop and say, hello, mate, how you doing? You look like a guy who's down on you, like, you know, come and have a start in my company. We'll pay you a thousand pound a month. It's all going to be good, you know. But of course, life doesn't work like that. So, yeah, so there I was. I'm, I'm, I've got a job again. Hong Kong's a very expensive city to live in. I went out there to make my fortune. I had a company that turned over a hundred thousand US dollars when I went out there. And as you've said, within six months, I'm chronically addicted to crystal meth. I'm experiencing psychosis. That will explain the blanket story that I told last time when I bought this blanket in the market and in my mind it's it's like infected with tuberculosis it's one of the blankets that the North American settlers gave to the indigenous Indian community to wipe them out or I don't know the history behind that but this is what (laughs) my mind is telling me right so on top of all this I've now landed a job in a club, I call it uh, Club Nemo in my book. Anyone who's been in Hong Kong, any expat will know the club that I'm talking about. Um, and on my first night there, there was a what, what you might call an old China hand. They're people that floated around Asia for a while. They know the score. They, they just know all the stuff that a typical tourist isn't going to know, right? And this guy said to me, he said, you know, they're all triads. In fact, the first thing he said, Chris, isn't it? And I'm like, I was just surprised, he, you know, why would you know my name? And he said, uh, you know, they're all triads. Well, my ears just pricked up, Sean, because I think, you know, I'm a guy that's been primed for the Marines, so I'm already primed for a, let's call it a gang of, of sorts, right, a brotherhood. So naturally I'm going to have a fascination with another brotherhood, okay, albeit a criminal one. Although, if you see the role of the British military in recent years, it's, you know, who's the criminal? Sorry, no dis—I mean, no disrespect there to anyone, but, you know, it's it's got to be said, right? And, uh, yeah, so my ears pricked up, and he pointed to my two fellow doormen. One of them was this six-foot-seven guy that looked like a horse, right? And he said, that's Daisu. He's an assassin. Every now and again, he gets smuggled across the border into China to do a hit on someone. And then they smug- yes, smuggle him back in. I, I know it might sound surreal, Sean, but like my whole life has been, you know, I've had a life across, I, I said this in the last time, 80 different countries on all seven continents. And that's, that's just how I chose to live, right? I guess all in a quest to answer the question, who am I? Which when you, when, you know, when you're a damaged little kiddie, you, you carry with you all, all your life, you know, when things don't make sense and why you feel sort of different to, to, to the rest. But then he points to the other doorman and said, that's uh, Chu Chai. He's a street fighter. Magi, they say in... Um, in Cantonese 
And Magi is triad speak. It means little horse. So they're like your runners, right? Your street runners. They're the people that are going to be running the drugs rackets on the street corner sort of thing. And he's looked. At, I looked at this guy and he's this sort of short, squat, very muscly triad, but with this surprisingly cherubic face. And uh, he said, you know, he might not look much, Chris, but you watch when a fight kicks off, he will pick up anything if he thinks he can smash an enemy over the head with it, right? And uh, I, I'm I'm going to find all this out, right? And uh, yeah, so my interest was peaked, you could say. When was the first time you found that stuff out? Well, at first it was all quite benign. You know, I'm I'm thinking, like I'm a doorman in a club. I'd, I'd done that job in two other clubs in Hong Kong, but they were both owned by expats. They were Scottish owned, which I think goes back to the days of the old trading companies that were, you know, the Scots had a big influence in Hong Kong. And of course, there was no, I don't know if they paid, probably had to pay, pay protection money to the local triad in Wan Chai, the 14K. Um, but like I say, in my mind, I'm just a doorman in a club. In retrospect, I'm probably more a go-between. And I, my role there, as I was to find out, is to stop your typical drunken, gobby, expat businessman who's come out of the office, his, you know, ties half-mast. Um, and, and they would... I mean, to give you one example, there was one guy, and he's slaughtered, and he's pointing at this dilo. So the guy that gave me the job is a dilo, right? That's gang leader. He's in charge of this gang. Oh, he's in charge of this gang in Wan Chai. Uh, Paul Eng, call him, or at least that's his name in my book, right? And this drunken, <laughs> this drunken businessman is just, him, him. He's telling me I have to pay, you know, it's it's like 10 Hong Kong dollars for a glass of water. It's about a quid. So I'm like, mate, 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 calm the fuck down. You, you're pointing at like the most important man in this area. And in, in Chinese culture, Sean, you have something called face. And it's almost impossible for a Westerner to understand it's like a deep-seated pride. And if you make someone lose face, which can be for the silliest of reasons, right? And I, I fell foul of this syndrome, as it were, uh, before. They can hold, um, what's the word, like a vendetta against you for life till they get you back. So to give you an idea... Apologies if I said this last time, but there was a guy delivering coffee to a to a tailors. Guys, maybe a young triad. I don't know. It's it's not really important. But he delivered the coffee to the tailors, and the tailor looked at him and said, "I didn't order that." Well, what he should have said is, "Oh, oh right. I'll just get my wallet out and right." Because by saying I didn't order, he's telling the guy you didn't do your job right and you never make someone else lose face even if it means dipping in your wallet 
paying for goods that you never ordered, right? So when the tailor opened his shop the next day, every single one of his suits had been slashed with a razor blade. This, right? Wow. Quite extreme, isn't it? Yeah. You know? So, like I say, when the Dilo, the triad boss, ordered me to throw the girl out of the rubbish when she was dying, and I was like, fuck, am I going to do that, right? You know, British way of thinking. Of course, I'm making him lose face. So immediately from my first night in this club, I'm onto a dodgy wicket. I've upset the most important man in Wanshine. He... He, like, gave me some leeway, give him credit. Um, the next day, I just looked at him and I said, Paul, I, I did the wrong thing last night, didn't I? I? I'm just trying to say the right thing, Sean, you know. This is this has all got a bit serious now, right? And he just, just nodded like that. He'd never look at you. He just, he wouldn't speak unless he had to, right? So, yeah, the issue of face. I'm not quite sure how we got around to to that subject but it's hey i love it, the way you're telling oh, these stories oh, right no no the i'm so gripped by this yeah, bad stuff so the point was you've got this drunken expat pointing in the dilo's face making him lose face and, and my job there really is to say dude dude just just calm down look give him a water give him just just give him a you know and the barman would run over with a water and that sort of thing and i'd calm the guy down explain the situation and i'd nudge him i say look just just look over there and there'd be, say, a group of eight, ten triads drinking. They all used to wear these white shell suit tops, jeans, white trainers, loads of gold. Tattoos, funny enough, were always hidden. You never, you know, they were all full body tattoos, right? What are the triad tattoos? Um, I can't pretend I really know, Sean, other than what I've seen from, you know, from the media. It's the sprawling dragon. Because, oh no, sorry, when I was in the, uh, I, I was a member of a gym for a while. And yeah, there's some big, big guys there, right? Big steroid bosons. And they were covered in these sprawling dragons, right? And I guess there's a lot of, um, what can you say, like language written there in the tattoos that you're never going to understand, right? There's a, some gang loyalty stuff, right? So, yeah, so I'm saying to this guy, look, look, calm down, look over there. Do you see those eight guys? Yeah, right. They're all going to fucking kill you, mate. They will pick up anything. They'll pick up that ashtray. They'll pick up the ice tongs. They'll grab it. They'll... And when it kicked off in the club, they would just push everyone out of the way and just try to go in for the kill, Sean. And it was, you know, British bouncers can be a rough old lot, quite nasty at times, right? But they might go up and like kick a guy when he's down and maybe another will give it a few seconds and then, you know, give him a kick. Fuck off, mate. Don't come back here again, that sort of thing. But there's one situation where I'd been there a few weeks by this time. And it, like I say, it all seemed fairly benign other than that girl incident. And then I look, I'm, I'm stood, most of my time in the club, I stood at the bottom of the stairs all um, Chinese clubs have stairs that point upwards and, they have, and they're mirror lined and they face towards the sea. So they've got the Hong Kong mountains behind them. This is feng shui. Another thing that in our culture, we think it's some trendy 
nouveau like london thing you know you have your feng shui and it bring there it's really taken seriously and so you have mountains behind you're building points at the sea it's, pro- it's all about prosperity if you can't have your building pointing at the sea you ha- that's why the restaurants have the fish tanks in front so they have you know sea water right the mirrors is to reflect the evil spirits out of the club something that you and i go oh, oh yeah right no no it, it it it's it's a different culture sean you know in fact it's so serious that i visited my publisher over there and he lived in a building that faced the mountain and my publisher was like completely oblivious to all that i'm telling you now i i'm not even sure if he realized why they hung cds on the railings all the way across the front of the building cds being mirror like right spinning in the in the wind reflecting the evil away from the building because it's got bad feng shui it's facing the mountain um so yeah so i'm in the stairwell i used to like look up to see the punters coming into the club or sometimes you'd go up the stairs and stand um stand you know stand there just checking out what's going on on a busy night in wan chai but this time i'm at the bottom of the stairs uh chu chai is stood three paces from me at the other side of the stairwell and he's looking up the stairs as if you know nothing's happening which it which it which it pretty much wasn't i look to my right and this six foot seven assassin daisu is charging through the club and he's got you know in literary terms i'd say a little old man i don't know i mean i don't know the guy's age right but kind of a seedy spiv like character in a cheap suit and he's charging towards the stairs with this guy over his shoulders and i'm looking at Chu Chai thinking you haven't seen this yet what's going to happen now my um my role in that situation is just stay the fuck out of it it's triad business right i'm a guilo i'm a foreign devil i'm there to do a job they treated me like the family but you know it's kind of a i think it's fair to say it's kind of a superficial it, they they giving me face right i i'm i'm working for them they have to give me face that's why they they'd invite me for breakfast every day with the family right so daisu comes charging over this old man hurls him down in the footwell guy's terrified sean Chuchai hasn't seen Daisu just starts kicking the fuck out of him like you've never seen right I'm talking you know like a Millwall supporter that's caught a who's Millwall's enemy Chelsea I don't know you know well there you go you know like they've got a West Ham fan and he's giving it to him Chuchai's like and I could just see the startleness if that's a word we're authors right is that a word (laughs) (laughs) but you know his face just was just a picture and he turned and the two of them just you know he ran over and they just proceeded to kick him as hard and as fast in the head as they could they're just kicking this guy in the swede you know sheer it's it's whatever he's done 
it's gone against the face of the 14K, right? It's gone against the face of the club, the people that work there, the triads that staff it. So they're kicking this guy. I'm just spread eagled against the wall. I was pretty sort of, I don't know if laissez-faire is the right word, but I'm like, okay, try a business. I'm not going to get involved. I'm stood there. And uh, this guy like looked up like he's just like a frightened mouse, mate, you know. And he looked up the stairs and he just made his bolt for freedom. And he ran up the stairs and they're screaming after him, Julie Lamo, which means go fuck your mothers. Fill in the blank, right? But what these two, uh, my triad, my two triad doorman didn't see is a bit of paper fell, came from his pocket. So I just picked it up. I don't know why I'm doing that if we're on camera, but, you know, I, I bend down and pick up this bit of paper and I just snuck it in my pocket. And when I went home that night, I pulled it out and it was a list of racehorses. And one of the things that used to happen in the club, or two of the things that used to happen, and it used to make me feel kind of like I belonged, is they'd come and just... Give me 80 knocked off Mar Marlborough. Marlborough smuggled in. There was fake Marlborough from China. And then, of course, there was contraband Marlborough. But one of the triers would come in and just give me cigarettes. And it made you feel like, wow, I'm really one of the boys here, you know. And the other thing they do is occasionally they just slip your horse. And you'd go, okay, like that. And of course, they're telling you this horse is going to win the race, the next race on Saturday at one o'clock or, or whatever. And, and you can go and put money. It's a guaranteed win, right? A hooky horse. So, so yeah, I'm guessing that this guy was in the club somehow punting these hooky horses, but he wasn't 14K. And that was just like a big no-no, you know? So, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite an eye-opener. Did the gang get along with themselves or were the fallouts among the gang members? I never really got that deep into it, Sean. I'm, I'm literally, I'm just working in a nightclub. I'm seeing what goes on. Um, it, it got a bit bizarre because I, after that incident with the girl, I turned up for work and there was a South African lad on the door. I thought I was the only white guy, the only guaylo working for the triads in Hong Kong, you know, for the 14K. This guy turns out, he's been there a few years and he's kind of like their guaylo boy, right? You know, they, 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 they trust him. He kind of like understands their ways, right? And they, he said, I'm Drick, short for Hendrick, right? And I'm like, this is about the girl, isn't it? And he went, yeah. I said, Drake, what, what what was I supposed to do? She's dying on the floor. I wasn't going to chuck her out with the rubbish. He said, Chris, what you do when that happens is you pick her up, you chuck her over your shoulder, you go out and throw her in a cab. I was like, ah, uh, I, you know, obviously I hadn't thought of that, right? But, um, so I'm chatting to him. I'm like, so is that what this is about? Is this why you've obviously come here to like baby me? That That's what it felt like, right? He said, no, well, not just that. So I'm like, go on. He said, they think you're a cop. That's when your heart starts going. Doof, doof. 
you know. Now, here's the thing, Sean, and this should be completely open here. I'd worked in, th- this was my th- third club I'd worked in in Wan Chai now, right? Um, I'd been in Hong Kong by this stage eight or nine months. It wasn't like I was a unknown face. Um, I took that with a pinch of salt. I mean, surely if like you were that worried about me, you'd know that I worked literally on that club over there and, and on the door of that club over there. I, I just took it with a, a, a pinch of salt. But uh, later that evening, this whole bunch of triads piled into the club and they're all dressed immaculately, talking like sort of cashmere, is it? You know, cashmere sort of jackets and smart and leather, you know, smart leather shoes. And they all carried a leather holdall that looked like a big sort of child's pencil case, that kind of thing. And it was obvious they'd been to some 14K meeting, right? Or, or for this part of the gang. It was just amazing how smart they, you know. But then again, gangsters are renowned for looking smart, aren't they? But I, I do remember just stood there looking at these, eyeing these kind of wallets that they all had, thinking, is that what they carry their chopping blades in? Is that, you know, do you know? Because they're vulnerable when they're out on the street, right? You know, they're vulnerable to attack from another tribe. It, it happens. I, I told you about my friend that got chopped up, didn't I? Did we do that one last time? Can't remember that one. Yeah, there was a guy. Um, when I first got to Hong Kong, I didn't know the guy then, but I got to know him later. He used to ping me ecstasy pills, right? And uh, he was working in Kowloon side, which is the mainland side. Hong Kong is an island. Kowloon is the peninsula that goes up into mainland China. It's called part of the New New Territories, right? And the gang that ran, it's the, the, the area is called Chim Sa Choi. And the gang that ran it, um, oh, oh, the name will come to me. It wasn't the Wo Xing Wo. It was, anyway, the name will come to me. Um, he was working in one of their clubs so he was doing my job but over the water right and one night he was sat on the steps of his club and a transit van pulled up and they got out and they chopped this guy to bits i heard two different stories i've just had a hong kong expat approach me and say no it wasn't quite the way that i was told it i was told he was doing nothing 10 or 12 tries piled out the back with chopping blades and they chopped this guy to, to bits, right? His his thumb was hanging off where he'd put his hand up to protect himself. When I knew him, he had his face was all crisscrossed with these big slashes. And the story I was told is that he was like this hard as nails Essex geezer that three days later he was back working on the door, right? And that it turned out to be a case of mistaken identity. The uh, the story I've subsequently been told is no, it was a hit on the triads in this club by another triad, and he just stupidly got involved. Hence, why I say my job is like just get out, get out of the way when when it kicks off, right? So uh, yeah, that's the chopping blade 
situation. So all the time I'm in this club and I'm off my head, Sean, you know. I, I'm. It's not like a rave. Crystal meth isn't like you're on ecstasy and yeah, or you're really drunk. It, it's, it gives you a feeling of supreme confidence, um, calmness, the ability to, to kind of do and learn amazing things. Like all the stuff they told you you're a failure at school, you suddenly realize, no, actually, I can do that. Hence why I started writing, right? The trouble is, when you're addicted to it, it kind of comes a bit full circle and all those great qualities that you start out enjoying start to have the opposite effect. And I, I know you know a bit about this. You start to hallucinate because you haven't slept for days on end. You lose incredible amount of weight because you have you, you have no appetite. Um, yeah, when I was on it in the beginning my productivity just went through the roof. I had extra confidence. I felt like superhuman. All this energy, didn't need to eat, didn't need to sleep. But in the background, the side effects are slowly rising. You've got to pay the piper, man, with drugs. <laughs> That's it, you know. Where, where there's a high, there's a low. And this, this, you know, this is the thing. So by this stage, Sean, I'm really sketchy. I'm sweating profusely because Hong Kong is a tropical climate right I'm always let, I'm, your timekeeping goes out the window you're always rushing you know I had one doorman job where I'd get from Mongkok on, on the mainland side to the island which should have been like a let's say 25 minute commute on the, the tube they got a super fast tube called the MTR the motor transit railway in Hong Kong should be like a 25 minute trip for a normal guy. I'd leave myself like 12 minutes. And I got to the point where one of the things with meth was I could just run across the road. I could run across eight lanes of traffic. Is it eight lanes in, on the Nathan Road? I, I, I can't remember, but you know, six lanes of traffic. And I'm just using my peripheral, not even my vision, but my sense. And I just just judge it and blitz it across, hammer down the escalators into the tube. I'm that guy that catches the tube as the doors are closing and, and you get through. And I used to, I had to, Sean, because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't lose my job, right? It's an expensive place to live. Um, so, yeah. How did you get out of them thinking you were a cop? Well... <laughs> For a start, I don't know how much of that is real because it's not like they're going to tell me. I used to ask, like, my fellow doorman things. Like, you know, I, I spoke... Uh, I wasn't fluent in Cantonese by any means. It's an incredibly difficult language. It's a tonal language. So one word can be said in approximately six to eight different ways and mean a different thing, right? Um but I did like to try and learn as much as I could. And I got to the point where I could speak a lot more, you know, I could hold my a conversation with a taxi driver, for example, for the course of the trip. And they'd say, ah, they sit gong on the wagay hoa. You know, you speak Cantonese really well, you know, oh, um, siu, 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 you know, I just speak a little, right? And, um, and so, I mean, I asked one of this guy, Chu Chai, one night, like, how, how do you write your name? You know, I'm just like a not, I'm a young man, Sean, right? 
you know, I've been through the Marines. You hear that cliche, don't you? Oh, the military makes you a man. And it, 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 it's not really worth the paper it's printed on. I mean, don't even know if I'm a man now, if I was honest, right? I don't know if I'll ever get to that, you know, that 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 level. But yeah, I'm just keen and I'm like, mate, how do you write your name? And well, of course, I'm like asking a Hong Kong triad how he writes his name. It's probably not like the smartest thing to do. <laughs> and they just like look at me in disdain and walk away and and you know, it all got it, it all got a bit messy. Um So you asking them to write the name, that's like something a cop would kind of do, like Well, give me a this name. is it you know, this is trying to find out the name. This is I think they could tell I was quite harmless, Sean. It which didn't fit. Do you, do you know what I mean? I, I don't know how much they knew for example, about the drugs, it started to become obvious towards the end because I was just, I wasn't well, mate, you know. You've got to remember, I'm living in psychosis a lot of this, and psychosis comes and goes. It's not with you all the time. Um, you, you have different sort of episodes of it, right? So, I mean, to give you an example, one episode of staring out the window of this flat that I told you about on the top of this apartment block, and I'm looking down into the courtyard below, and it was full of these sort of stray cats. One of the cats like, got up, and rather than just bimble across the court line, like, like you'd expect a cat to do, right? It it went, it sort of went, well, my this this kind of you get like three voices in your head. You get you. You get your thoughts, and then you get your um, psychosis thoughts, right? So the psychosis thought is going, ah, cats, puppets, you know, because it reminded me of, um, do you remember Muffin the Mule? When we, I was, was just before my job, but there was a puppet on TV called Muffin the Mule, and it used to go, eh, 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 and, and in my head it's going, ah, puppets. So I stared at those cats hours right and then I'm looking at the guy there was a restaurant below and there was a guy chopping meat out the back of the restaurant and I could have sworn Sean he's chopping the meat twice opening the door chopping the meat twice opening the right and I'm fascinated and my brain's going puppetry it's all puppetry where did puppetry start started in Asia didn't it oh my god these people are masters at this wow is is everything in Hong Kong puppets? Who's who's like? Is, <laughs> it's great, isn't it, that we can laugh at it because otherwise, Sean, it's fucking sad, mate. You know, I mean, it really was. I, I was just really, un, really unwell. But but I stared at them for ages, and then and and so my next like bout of episodes would all be about puppetry. I'd be walking down the street, and I'd hear a car car horn go beep beep. Beep, and then a traffic light change. Beep, 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 and I hear this pattern in it all, and think, ah. And I, I thought the puppet master was this little old Chinese man that used to live in a building opposite me. <laughs> and I was, like I said, I was that unwell. I thought he's controlling the whole of Hong Kong with some sort <laughs> of pulleys and strings, right? And it got, you know, that that's just one episode of a, a whole vast um 
you know, a whole vast confusion of episodes. I got to the point where, you know, when you start first finding out, and I'm talking like being straight here now, that that life isn't the way that you thought it was. You start learning about, you know, I, was, I, I use the term Illuminati loosely, but you you know that there's there's stuff go- the world there's is. stuff going on in this world that most people just never see, right? And then you start to see the symbolism in television programs, right? And it's and it's all there. Well, it's exactly like that, except I'm obviously really unwell back back then. But it takes that exact form. So you're picking up a book, you're looking at the back cover, and you know you're you're reading the blurb. And to you, there's a whole esoteric set of information on there. You and I became obsessed with working out the cipher. Then I started to think, well, what's going on in the club, right? You know, so there's there's this puppet conspiracy. Um, there's this triad conspiracy, which is, you know, well, I mean, that, that, that just is. But then the expats that used to come in my club, I just started noticing what at the time were strange things about them, right? And this guy, Drick, would turn to me and he'd say things like, have you got it yet? And I'm like, Drick, what the fuck are you on about? Nothing, nothing. Right, and he'd just leave, he'd just drop that in, right? Now, Sean, I'm willing to admit I may have been just completely misconstruing that. You, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to... Think he was trying to score you know. drugs? No, he was like, oh, well, that was one thing. He said to me, you know, do you want to earn some money? I'm, I'm like, well, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm skinned, right? He's like, well, go and see Paul. Paul will set you up smuggling gold through. They used to smuggle it through Nepal. Are you familiar with this? We had a guest who was busted smuggling gold through Nepal. There you go. So, yeah. So Drake's like, if you want to make some money, Chris, I'm like, have you done it? He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, what, what did you do? He said, oh, gold through Nepal, diamonds through, I don't know, let's say Korea. I'm like, drugs? Did you ever? He's like, nah. Drugs, fool's game, Chris. Drugs is the only thing in an airport you can't lie your way out of. Right? I'm like, oh, okay. But Sean, I was never, even though I'm obviously desperate by this stage in every sense of the word, I never really considered that, you know? It got... it. <sighs> I'd, I'd urge anyone, if, if you want to make head or tail of what I'm saying or learn more, just read the book, you know. Um, because it's, I, I've just tried to be honest in there about what it's like to go mad. And I don't think many books have been written. So it's valuable, if, you know, if you're studying social work or mental health, um, if you just have an interest in, in, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, you got some, homeless guy walking down the street shouting stuff used to just cross over the street right well if you read eating smoke you're going to learn why that guy is talking that way what what is going through his mind how you know this kind of thing so yeah so i was really um obviously really unwell but then i started to i'm i'm pondering what is this trick guy going when he's like have you got it yet have you, have, you, have you got it yet? And then I saw this expat coming into the club. 
and they used to be like your like a clique you know there was the same old faces and you've got to remember they're coming into a chinese run club it's not it's not a westerner club and a lot of them seem to be doing really well for themselves but they didn't have jobs so i'm thinking you know are they dealing drugs for the 14k is is this the the deal and you know i've no doubt many of them were um the the tries will work with anyone sean you know you can only be a well a, the legend has it you can only be a pure-blooded chinese to be a triad right and they don't trust they don't even trust hong kong chinese who studied overseas right but that doesn't mean they won't work with you if they think you can make money for them, right? Which is, I think that's the mafia of the world, world over. So I'm stood there and I'm looking at this guy, Drek, and this expat comes in the club. And my mind is frantic by this time, trying to work out what is this conspiracy, you know, is it to do with the cats? Is it the, is it, is it a truck? And the guy came into the club and he went, and Drick went <clears throat> like that. And I was like, ah, I've got it. I've got it, right? When we were in the Marines, and we used to do parade drill, you know, with our rifles and <clears throat> marching and all this kind of stuff, we could do a whole section of that for, say, 10 minutes without the drill instructor uttering a single command. And we're moving towards each other as two, let's say, two troops, and we're marching right through the middle, then we're changing position and going this way, then we're putting our weapons up and doing all this clever trickery. And the crowd are watching it thinking, how do they do that? No one's no one's saying anything, you know, no one's giving them any orders. Well, what it was is you had a guy called Hissing Sid in the middle of the troop. He was designated to hiss the commands. So you knew when the command's coming and you knew what it was because you just memorized them. And he would, you march along, he'd go, and you'd go that way. And all of you, you know, because when you're out there on the parade square and you're, let's just say, 30 meters away from your, your audience, they can't hear that, right? And I was thinking in this club, my God, that's it, isn't it? How clever. If you're, if you're a member of some clicky expat triad or this kind of these expats that seem to be in cahoots with this Chinese gang, what a clever way. You know, I walk past you in the street, Sean, we don't have to look at each other. I go, <clears throat> and you go, <clears throat> you don't even have to rate, you, you know, <laughs> immediately it's an esoteric form of communication, right? And then I, so I'm watching more. I'm watching the other people that are coming into the club. And I've had hand signs on my mind for a while because it's well known the triads operate with hand signs. So, you know, this can mean something, that can mean something, touching there can mean something, touching there, all can mean different stuff, right? And I started to notice these expats, these clicky ones, they're coming into the club and I'm looking at their hands and... I should add in now, right? I've been hearing the expression sick yin, yak gun holop, right? Which means smoke cigarette okay? and one can of coke. 
Chinese always put the one before something, so it's one book, one drink, one one can of coke, right? And I'm hearing a sick in the smoke cigarette. And people used to shout it when they walked past the club as if they were shouting at me, Sean, right? And then there I was one day seeing this guy come in the club and I'm looking at his hands and what signs he making with his hand as he comes towards this guy, Drek. He's got one hand like this, one hand like this. Smoke a cigarette, one can of Coke. And I'm like, oh. And then they do the... <clears throat> So I'm, I'm like, ah, how clever, how really clever. No other expat in Hong Kong is ever going to suss. These guys are communicating with each other, acknowledging that they're in what, what I started to believe was the foreign triad, right? Now, it might sound bizarre, Sean, but when I was writing my book, I googled foreign triad and i came across an article written by a guy called bill sparrow and he'd been in hong kong and the club he talked about going into i'm pretty sure was the club i worked in right and he talked about getting a relationship with a filipino worker and how they started to see each other and and so i'm talking 15 years later now when i'm living back in the uk doing my research and one day he sees this tattoo on the girl's arm this filipina girl's arm and he says oh what's that then she's like oh nothing nothing he said, oh come on she said oh it's a it's the foreign triad he's like you know what, what what's that then she said oh it's um it's a group of foreigners you know westerners filipinas indians we they have their own triad and they work alongside the 14k running their errands for them you know getting prostitutes for them smuggling drugs selling drugs for them this kind of thing well you can imagine how i felt 50 i don't i had that on my mind sean 15 years did i was i imagine yeah it's like i wasn't imagining it but i might have been reading too much into it but anyway going back to the club i'm stood there in this footwell and they used to have cigarette posters on the wall of this footwell. And I turned to one of them and I'm like, huh? It's a typical cheesy cigarette poster. One of them is a, it's a guy sat at a beach party and he's, he's got a can of Coke in one hand and he's puffing his Chinese cigarette in the other. And I'm, and I'm like, Yat Gun Holok, Sik Yin, Yat Gun Holok. I look at the next poster and it's a girl on a tennis court and she's got her tennis racket, like, you know, making this hand sign. She's smoking her Chinese brand cigarette. I'm not advertising here now. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, how deep is this thing? How freaking deep is this thing? This is, do you see what I'm saying? And the third poster was something equally as... um confirming Sean should we say right so all that went on I'm just my mind is just 100% occupied with trying to suss this out now right 
And a couple of things happen which will build up to the story I'm going to tell you. Um, there were two things. I'm not sure if I mentioned this when I saw you last time, but there was a homeless guy, right, used to come in the club. And what the triad big brother, the Dilo, would do is he would let these guys come in, they would walk around the club, and then they would leave. Wouldn't have a drink. They would just come in, dressed in, you know, not not rags, but street, you know, they stunk of stunk of nicotine when they've been um, scavenging cigarette butts, right? Their eyes were sort of bulging black, which I don't, you know, I just assumed that was a drug of some sort, right? And uh, they'd walk around the club, they'd hold their head up, like, you know, keeping the face, and the sort of triad boss would, like, nod at them like, like that, and then they would leave, Right? But this one guy, he'd always stop. Well, no, he wouldn't always stop. He went to go out of the club and he turned and he asked me something like, oh, me nothing. And he turned to walk out and I said, no, you're all right, mate. Yeah. Yeah, you look fine to me. Oh. And then he would come and he would grab the sleeve of my shirt and he wouldn't let go. And I looked at his arm and it was all just messed up with what probably were infected mosquito bites in, in, in hindsight, but it looked like drug sites, Sean, right? You know, from injecting them. And he would mumble this stuff. It was, he was in some sort of psychosis of his own. He kept going on about horsepower and pointing at the air conditioning unit. Going, yeah, I get you the one. 72 horsepower, one 500 horsepower. And, I didn't know if he was talking about drugs and the different strengths or I I bring the girl, I bring the girl to the man, right? Which I just took as he's getting girls for prostitution in the, in the clubs, which obviously is a big, big thing over there. And um, so that was that. But my fellow doorman came over, Chu Chai, and I just sort of looked at him and said, Chu Chai, Pock duck, right? I, I, pock duck means, means take drugs. Now, I honestly swear, Sean, I wasn't trying to be a hypocrite. It wasn't. I wasn't trying to get the guy in trouble or anything. I mean, it was. It was sort of obvious that this guy was, you know, four sheets to the wind or whatever. What I was trying to do is show, like, I know the job of doorman. You know, I know how to, like you would in an English club, like, uh, you, mate, you're not coming in. You're, you're fucking wankered. Fuck off. Come back when you're straight. You know, that sort of thing, right? And uh, this Chu Chai just look at me and pff, just give me this look of disgust that they, they would do whenever I fucked up, basically. So I'm just feeling awful thinking I, I, I wasn't trying to get him in trouble, Sean. I, you see, it comes down to face. This guy's got nothing. He's homeless. He's lost everything. He's got no house, no no nothing, as he keeps telling me. And what do I do? I then effectively dob him in to one of the tri- triads. I, I, I'm just trying to do my best, right? But, of course, what am I doing? I'm stealing his face. You don't do that in Hong Kong, right? So that was that. The other thing was, got to one night where he said... Um, He's continuing to do the me, me nothing, me no money, no house. 
in Hong Kong, stature is massively important, Sean. The first thing a Cantonese person will ask you is, what is the size of your flat? Yeah, I know it sounds crazy, right? But what it is, is they measure the square feet in Hong Kong. And the more square feet you have, the more status you have. Because um, living quarters is uh, limited over there, right? It's really expensive. So if you say, I've got an X amount of square foot flat, it's like, oh, you immediately, you know, go up in someone's um, estimation. And um, so, yeah, so him saying me nothing, me no house, he's just saying I'm the lowest of the low. And like I say, Sean, I could, John, I, he was called Johnny and I called him Johnny Horsepower because he's always pointing up and talking about horsepower, right? So in my mind, I just, he's Johnny Horsepower, right? And uh, he said, no, me nothing, you no understand. I said, Johnny, look, let's, let's meet tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah, I'll meet you in the park. What time? Well, I'll finish here about eight. I think I'll finish at seven or eight in the morning. Oh, okay. His smile just lights up that I'm I'm giving him face, Sean, you see. You know, he's he's got nothing and I'm I'm a guilo who they kind of secretly they they would never admit this, but they kind of look up to the West we're a bit revered. You you can get a job in a Hong Kong business just for being a Westerner, because it's all about prestigiousness and this kind of thing right so anyway i i said that but of course i'm so wired i've got this massive conspiracy in my head i'm not well i completely forgot to go and meet the guy in the morning i'm just heading back to my flat like i always did and rather than do the sensible thing which get my head down try and get some sleep or at least you know lie down for for an hour or two no, I'm so addicted to this stuff, Sean. I'm, my mind, I'm just going to go and smoke some more, right? And I couldn't stop doing that, which is why I've got, you know, why my problems are building. So all that I, you know, didn't didn't think about, obviously. And then there was a situation in the club. The dialer was away at doing business at another club. His kind of like deputy manager was at the bar. He's talking to another triad and they just keep looking at me. So I'm stood there by the door trying to look like I'm not off my head and I, you know, know how to do a doorman job. And and I'm, it's just not going unnoticed that they just keep looking at me. And they're talking to a girl. Well, you know, you're in a red light district, right? You know, so you could probably describe this girl as she looked like she probably left many sailors drugged up and walletless in a and b you know what I'm saying? L- looked a bit rough, right? A bit of a sociopath, maybe. And they're chatting to her. And the next thing, she walks over, and I'm stood by the side of the door, I'm not blocking the door or anything, and she stumbles into me. She just looks at me with this evil look. Pocay, guaylo. Well, Pockeye is a term you don't use on anyone, Sean. It's the worst form of insult. It's kind of in English, it would just mean fuck you. But as I said, with the issue of face, like you you don't say that, you know, you, you never say that. It basically means like, I want you to drop drop dead, right? <sighs> she wasn't the friend of the guy that you were supposed to meet in the park by any chance. No, no. But you've got to remember, you know, they're all talking. It's all chit chat about, and and obviously you know a lot of it's going to be about me because I'm displaying 
kind of unique <laughs> behavior. I'm, I'm trying to hold it together on the door, Sean, and look, you know, I've got sweat literally running in rivers down into my boxer shorts, and I'm there trying to look like I'm not absolutely anxious as sh- shit. And the more this episode went on, the more crap I just became, Sean, right? But the way that she kind of accidentally on purpose lurched into me kind of told, well, just told me she'd done it on purpose. So she said, fuck off, Guilo. And I said, I'm oh, sorry, love, I don't speak Chinese. But I said it in that way that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a reaction out of her. It's just a stupid thing to do, right? I'm 25, Sean, you know. No, I might have been 26 by then. It's not. I think I was 25, right? Anyway, she just looks at me daggers that I've dared talk back to her. I still don't know if this is gameplay, but this is my experience, right? And immediately my heart starts to go, ah, Chris, that, mate, that just wasn't so smart, really. She charges back over to the bar to this triad, you know, manager in the club who's talking to this other triad, and then they're, then they're aggressively like looking at me. They pull out their mobile phones and they're looking at me and they're stabbing into the keypad, right? And I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like, you know, you're not happy. You're caught. They did this thing, right? If ever the 14K get in trouble, say, for example, another gang are going to come and attack them, the first person who spots them come in can just text a keyword. I never had a mobile back then. It was, well, I had one. I was one of the first in the UK to have a mobile for my business before I went out there. So mobiles were quite new, but they, they, um, they could make a phone call and just say one keyword and every try, then that would just be, you know, you call five people, give them this keyword. They call five people, they call five people. Then all the triads in all the local businesses and all the local flats will just descend mob handed to protect their honor, right? You know, and protect them, protect their club or protect themselves. There was one scrap on Lockhart Road and over 200 triads turned up to, to battle it out, right? I remember saying to this old China hand, how do they, like, how do they know who's who? He said, oh, they, Chris, they, they have their ways. W- 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 what ways? Might be like a matchstick in the mouth, you know? Might be the way that, you know, the hat they've got on, this kind of thing, right? So I'm there, my heart's just, it's it's starting to flutter, Sean, you know? Who are they calling? Next thing, I'm looking up the stairs in this triad from another club, and some of them, mate, they were fucking hard as nails, you know? They just looked. They used to come in the club when they'd been fighting the Yanks off the ships, you know, if a yank kicked off in the bar, they would just go in. Like, well, I've already told you how violent they are, right? One night, one of the guys from the other clubs came in. He went, ha-ha. He waved his hand at me. All the skin was off his knuckles, right? He went, ha-ha, we just killed a guaylo. Like that. He, he didn't mean, I don't think they meant they killed a guaylo, but he meant that, like, we've just smashed the American sailors, right? So I'm well aware this, this is a thing. Plus, you've got to remember my mate got chopped up, in my mind, for doing the wrong thing, or at least that's what I thought. So I'm stood there, and this triad just comes charging down the stairs. And 
He looks at me, Guaylo, we're going to kill you. And I'm, I can't really explain it, Sean. That level of fear, it's a very unique place to be in life. And this happened, the next thing, there's another couple down the, bounding down the stairs going into the club. Guaylo going to die tonight. And my heart is just fucking beating out my chest now. I've got this, like a sterile, you know that feeling like when you know you're going to be sick? I wasn't going to be sick, that wasn't it, but that that feeling you get in your body, your mouth starts to, and it, it was almost as if everything went white, but I'm still there. And this just went on and on, you know, five or six times, before, and, and eventually there was, I don't, Sean, it, 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 it was, what, 15, 20 years ago, I, I can't put a number on it, but there's a big mob of triads all at the bar, all like looking at me like this, giving it, and I stood there, and the only way I can liken that fear is, you, do you remember those beheading videos in Iraq and stuff? Mm. They were fucking nasty, weren't they, you know? I used to just think of that poor guy in the orange pajamas, knowing this is it, mate. You went out to Iraq to do what? You 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 bought the ticket. You got paid a piper now, right? That this is this is this is that is exactly how I felt. I'm there. I'm trying to steady myself, right, and calm down. And I'm thinking, Chris, hang on, hang on. You've been a doorman on like three clubs in Wanchai, right? They can't just drag you out the back and chop you up. I mean, there's expats in this club now, right? They're going to witness this going, what are they going to say to Interpol? Oh, this guy just like spontaneously combusted and we never saw him again. You know, there's going to be questions and I'm, I'm thinking, right, in fact, before I even thought that, I thought, nah, fuck it, Sean, I'm not being intimidated by anyone. You know, at the end of the day, these are clicky fucking gangsters that have to hang around mob handed doing all these hand signs to feel good about themselves, right? <laughs> they got no clue, right? I was a Royal Marines commando. And I'm not talking about being hard now. I'm talking about the fucking pride that we have. And I ain't going to be scared by any of these fuckers, right? So I thought, right, next one who comes down that stairs, I'm going to f- just say one thing and I'll get the entry stamp and I'm just going to smack it in your fucking forehead, you know? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah no, it, it... You know, maybe it's a bit of bravado, Sean, but, you know, what, what else could I do, you know? I wasn't going to be intimidated. You, you don't know me. What have I done to you? I, I've done nothing, have I? I'm just basically a lost young man. And you have no clue why they've got it in for you. Just that I think they... Still under- the woman. Well, I'll tell you the hindsight afterwards, right? So I stood there, but then I'm starting to figure, well, hang on, they can't just do away with me. Like, what are they going to say to the police? What are, you know, okay, they control a lot of the police and all, but what, you know, there's going to be an investigation, going to be the international, was it Interpol or whatever? You can't just say, oh, the guy was on the door one minute and he just, I thought, nah, I think they're having a laugh, Sean. 
okay, it's not a very nice laugh. In fact, let's call it a chuckle <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I thought, and then the next person, uh, oh, no. As this is all going on, right, and before I've kind of got to this contemplative, reflective stage, the next guy in the club is an expat that I was talking to the night before, right? He'd come over to see his cousin who was working in Hong Kong. And while he was chatting to me, I said, mate, have you noticed anything? He's like, mm, what? I said, these triads all wear the white shell suit. They've got the white trainers, the jewellery. It's like you can, when you look around the club, it's just obvious who are the triads, right? And in the Marine, Sean, we had the same thing. Any Marine will tell you who served back when I did in the 80s and 90s. You wore a Heli Hansen green uh, fleece. You wore an Ocean Pacific T-shirt. You wore faded jeans and chucker boots. That was our uniform. You could be anywhere in the world and see another Marine, like, straight away, right? So, obviously, the triads are going to have their own form of recognition, their own sort of underground uniform. So, I'm saying to this expert, I said, look. And he looked at me like I was a bit, you know, conspiratorial, can we say. And he wandered in, into the club to go and have his drink, and I didn't think anything more of it. Now he's coming downstairs in my club. He's got a white shell suit top and white trainers. And he looked at me and went, well, looky here. What am I wearing? <laughs> and he went into the club. Now, here's the thing, Sean. In hindsight, that could have meant anything. It could have just meant I put a white you know, Adidas top on today. I've got white trainers and look, I'm like the guys, you You know, it could have just been nothing. But in my mind, it's like, oh my God, he's a foreign triad. I've been pouring my, you know, secrets out to this guy and he's fucking one of them. Oh, what a, tw what a twat I am, you know? But of course, it's up in my fear even more, right? Then, and this is the icing on the cake, the Drick guy comes back to the door this so this south african lad he's like you're gonna get it tonight chris <laughs> like what <laughs> no nothing drink <laughs> what the fuck are you on about oh uh, you remember when you told you try that johnny does drugs i was like Drake, that's fuck all, mate. I was just trying to show Chu Chai, like I know how to be. Oh, okay. And suddenly my heart's going, oh, Chris, why did you do that? Shit, you fucking hypocritical bastard. It sounds awful hearing it, you know. So it just shows they're talking about me, right? Because this guy knows a conversation that happened, you know, between me and, me, me and someone else. There was another thing, right? There was a guy... Uh, He's got one ear, right? He was a barman in a very plush hotel. Before he started work every night, he downed a bottle of vodka. He was really bad alcohol problem. And when I was on the door, I used to go easy on him, Sean. But I, I felt for the guy. It, it, it came across to me that because he was disfigured, he was drinking to make up for it and he didn't feel like he could be attractive to, you know, this is how it came across. I caught him in one club, but I wasn't working on the door. I was just drinking in that club. We went on the dance and started to pull his trousers and pants down, right? And I grabbed him, like, mate, 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 that's, that's enough. Come on, let me get you a drink. And I'd take him outside and I used to put him in a cab 
and he'd look at me and go, thanks, mate, thanks. So he, he just appreciate what I did for him. And I did, this happened a few times. And one time I was in the toilet in my triad club, just taking a leak, right? And he came in the urinal next to me. I was skinch or desperate. And I looked at the guy, I can't remember his name now. It might, it might be in my book, but I said, he said, are you all right, Chris? I said, yeah, a bit, bit skint. He's like, oh, man, mate, mate. He just immediately went for his wallet because he's full of gratitude for me, Sean, you know. He went, yeah, just take it, take it. And he gave me like 200 bucks. It's about 20 quid. So I'm like, oh, dude, you know, I paid him straight back out of my, you know, there was nothing. I wasn't going to steal his money or anything, Sean. It was nothing like that, right? So this trick guy, I'm there, heart beating. He's like, what about when you... Borrowed 200 bucks from Sir Jeremy and you didn't pay him back. I'm like, Drake, you know fuck all about that, mate. This is a conversation that took place in a urinal between two, you know, he did, how could he even know anything about it, right? Strange, right? I said, you know fuck all about that, mate. I said, if you did, you'd know I, I paid Jeremy back out of my pay packet. And he said, and, uh, who were you supposed to meet in the park this morning? <laughs> oh, that was that was it, Sean. That was like the guillotine coming down. I'm <laughs> I'm suddenly feeling like the worst bastard in the whole world. This guy's got nothing. He likes it that I'm nice to him, and, and I'm I'm not nice to him because I'm trying to be Sean. I, you know, we're all equal in this world, right? It doesn't matter who you are, and I've always sort of felt that. And. But the fact that I'm the one positive in this guy's life and he's going to meet me in the park and I forgot about it. Then my heart just starts like, 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 like beating, right? This trick guy disappears into the bar to do the, you know, the bouncer walk around of the bar sort of thing. And I'm stood there and, and then, then I'm doing this thinking, hang on. I'm like, I've worked in three clubs They they can't just, I wonder if this is a piss take. Is this some sort of like bizarre triad humor or chi you know, Chinese have a very unique sense of humor as it is, okay? And as I'm thinking this, I look up and in the in through the top doorway comes the Filipina girl. And she was a girl I used to go out dancing with, or I wouldn't go out with her, but we'd always be in our favorite nightclub. It used to be called the Big Apple. Who uh it's funny now, I'm, I'm like friends with all the people from back then through Facebook and I'm, you were doing Skype and they're like, Chris, you were like this. And I'm like, was I? Yeah, we didn't know. Yeah, it's been fascinating, Sean, right? Fascinating. But this girl's coming down the stairs and she looks like a frightened fawn. She's just taking one step at a time. She's got, her eyes are just wide. And she came up and she just grabbed my arm. She, Chris, they fucking with you. Don't. Don't tell anybody or they'll kill me. Like that. And she just went into the club. So I just stood there and I was like, I'm so glad, Sean, I hadn't run out of there. Do you know what I mean? I smashed one in the face. Oh, I'm so glad I just stuck up, you know, kind of stuck up for, or just kept my dignity. You know, I, I thought if I die, I die. That, that's, that's just it, right? And this girl, you know, you, you, it, it, it might sound, that might sound nothing to, to English, you know, American people, but like she's nothing and she's a Filipina 
they are just the lowest of the low in the eyes of the the, the Hong Kong triads you know and they're basically prostitutes Sean if they don't like I said when the girl claps with a drug overdose throw her, in, throw her in the alleyway you know the fact she'd done that for me was just the ultimate human courage you, you can say so I'm there and I'm like gosh so then this drick guy comes back and he's like you're gonna get it now <laughs> I'm like oh mate fuck off and I like pat him on the back of the head and I said something you know something disarming like I can't I can't I can't remember like yeah okay mate thanks for that and I walked in the club there's all these triads all pretending to like look daggers at me and then there's a crescendo in the music you know coming from the dance floor and I just did a Michael Jackson 360 spin and then just walked onto the dance floor and had a dance and and uh that was just my way of saying it, you, you know, trying to like put some fucking closure on it. And yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that's a little part of my life, Sean. There was a situation where two triads had a fight with mobile phones. This is where it, it if it's not bizarre already, right? This is before this, what well, in my book, I call it the murder, right? Because that's how I felt at the time. Yeah. The, I'm stood in the stairwell, usual place, and one young magi, so a foot soldier for the 14K, comes running out of the club, and behind him, he's got another triad chasing him, and he's screaming, Jule Lamo, you know, go fuck your mother's so-and-so. Again, you know, you don't say that sort of stuff to anyone, but he's absolutely furious with this guy. The guy turns around in the stairwell right in front of me, so I do the spread eagle thing, and they proceed to battle it out. And the one of the guy, I can't remember if it's both of them, but one of the guy had his mobile phone, and he's just using it as a dagger, and he's smacking it into this guy's head, right? Blood's starting to spurt out everywhere. The one guy who was obviously the, you know, the, the, not the alpha male of the two just seized his chance and he turned and bolted for the stairs. And the guy in the stairwell reached out and grabbed his shirt tail and he ripped the shirt off his back. This guy didn't even stop. He's gone and he's screaming, Jule Lamo, and all this, you know, Cantonese insult chasing at this guy's heels, right? I thought, okay. Now, Again, you know, you'd think I'd learn by now. My immediate thing is protect the club, right? The dialer's looking after me. And Confucius, um, uh, not uh, under Confucius's rules, can we say, but also the triad rules, you respect your boss. In turn, your boss will respect you. That's why he gave me money to furnish my flat and all this sort of stuff, right? So my first thing is protect the club, you know, respect the dialer. So I ran to the cleaning cup. Uh, cupboard, grabbed a mop, and I started mopping up this blood. Of course, I'd fucked up because the cleaner then came out, Mr. Chan, this 70-year-old man. That's his job, Sean, right? You don't take someone else's job. And how can I explain? No, I'm not trying to take your job, mate. I'm cleaning up the fucking blood because the cops are going to be, you know, if the cops come in any minute, there's blood all over the floor. If anyone comes in, there's so I'm like, oh, okay, sorry, Mr. Chen, you know, there's your, there's your mop. And he's like looking at me, oh, oh, 
mopping this floor. <laughs> Literally two minutes later, who appears but the boys in blue? And you've got to remember the boys in blue in Hong Kong probably triad, Sean, right? This is just, just how it works. They, they, they've infiltrated all areas of life. And uh, they came in and they looked at me and went, ah, you see fight in here tonight? I'm like, fight in here tonight? No. <laughs> you know, I'm like dumb as a bear on masterminds, right? And, uh, oh, okay. And they, and I could see the Dilo like looking at me and I felt, oh, at least I've done something right, you know. Anyway, they, they disappeared. I thought it's strange. Like, why are they even turning up? I mean, who would have called the police? This is a triad run club run by triads, staff, you know, staffed by triads. This shit happens. And the expats don't have mobiles because we didn't have them back then. Us guilers, we all carried pages, Sean, right? So at least someone on a on a house phone or an office phone could get hold of you. We didn't have mobiles, so who, who's called the police? So again, I'm thinking, is this some sort of setup? When they'd left the club, I stood in the stairwell and I looked down. There's a fucking fake blood capsule on the floor, like, like broken in two and it it had been pushed to the edge of the stairwell where Mr. Chen had been sweeping with his mop right and I'm just like bend down double double check yeah it's like what you used to buy in the joke shops when you were a kid those fake blood if you're going to ask me Sean like what was that about I have no idea right all I can say is you get involved in crystal meth that you get weird experiences that you just can't they don't even make sense in hindsight you just can't put any <laughs> you know you can't put any logic to it so yeah so there was a battle then with the Sun Yi triad that oh, almost sun- it almost kicked off with them yeah the Sun Yon that was the the triad gang I was trying to remember the name of they're the guys that run Chim Sa Choi um, which is the island side of, of uh, the peninsula side of Hong Kong um, now again I'm just stood there in the club I'm actually in the club this time and I'm looking at the door and suddenly these triads are coming through it and you, you, you learn to spot them straight away Sean I, I, I can't really you, you just see it's like the way you can tell a serviceman, you know, you just see the way they hold themselves and they're coming through the door in this big snake, but they're not 14K. They're not dressed like 14K. And they came in the club and immediately you could see the 14K guys all pulling back like this. And I swear I might, this might, I'm, this might be my own imagination, but I swear they used to talk with their eyes, Sean, like, you know, they could just say a lot of communication with just their eyes. And these guys are all, look, the 14K are all just looking around. Next thing you know, there's like 20 guys from another triad in the club. Jesus. There's no logic to it. You don't do that. It's 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 like they're making this club lose face, Sean, right? In amongst them was their Guaylo doorman, who funnily enough also used to be called chris and i knew chris because whenever we used to go to after parties after you know work there's some crazy parties in hong kong sean you know mad drugs hong kong's you can get any drug you want there 
just like that and then it's not hugely expensive right so you can imagine it's the dance era rave sort of time some pretty crazy parties and i used to sit down and, you know maybe smoke a spliff with this guy chris so i sidled up to him i'm like chris what are you guys doing this side and he's like all stiff like this and he's like looking and he said I think we're leaving now like that and with that one of the tribes must have made some sign I don't pretend to know and they just turned Sean like all it turned as one just filed out the club like a snake <laughs> and it was you know it was like a Mexican standoff there for a moment um yeah Jesus. you mentioned the assassin the really tall guy have you got any stories about him I think it's funny that he liked me he was, it was the Chuchai, the, the cherubic face, the street fighter guy that kind of had a, you know, I just wound him up the wrong way, I guess you'd say. But Dicey was okay. He, You know, they keep their distance, Sean. They're very conscious that their English is, you know, most Hong Kong people speak English as a second language. It's not an issue, but these aren't your typical office workers. These are guys from some of the hardest sink estates is what we would call them, you know. They've not known love, mate. They've not known secure family. They come to the triad because it offers that that brotherhood, and that's where the loyalty becomes so so strong, right? Um, but yeah, no, I'd I'd be a liar, mate, if I could tell you any hits that he, I. But it was just never. I, I never came across that. But there was a funny situation where what we used to do in the morning is after all the punters had gone. You grab a torch and you go around the dance floor and you just scan the floor looking for any valuables and there was always something, you know, there's money, there, someone's dropped a bag of coke or crystal meth or this sort of thing. And One morning, he picked up, he picked up something, I can't, I think it was a lighter. And this is another thing in Hong Kong, you don't give people things because that's patronising. Or it can be, you know, I, I had this little old, I apologise if I use the expression little old man a lot, but, you know, it is like that cliche Hong Kong movie over there, Sean. You get these little wizened old guys and one of them become a real good friend of mine. We used to go dancing together and I used to stop at a 7-Eleven and get him a pack of Marlboro and I'd be like, push it across the table. He'd never accept it. And I, I never knew why until after I left Hong Kong and I learned more about the cultures. You don't, it, to give people gifts, it's like you're patronising them sort of thing, right? But anyway, in this case, this six foot seven assassin, Daisu, gave me like this, it was a cigarette lighter or something. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, a six foot seven assassin likes me and he's given me this cigarette lighter. And there was a pen. So I picked up the pen and I went, Daisu. He's like, mm -hmm. you see, do you see, do you see what I'm saying? The cult couldn't accept it. So I thought about it for a second, and I thought they hate the Indians, right? In in Cantonese, Yando Yan, so Indian man, Indian man, Yando Yan, and uh, they, they're very racist. <laughs> the, Hong Kong's quite a racist place. They call black people Hagwai and like Black Devil. And I've been on the MTR, the underground, where uh, black persons came in, sat down. And the Chinese person next to them will just get up and move carriages, Sean. You know, it's 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 not. I, I I couldn't tell you exactly 
why, but there's all, you know, all these aspects of culture coming into this that we couldn't understand. But they used to hate the Indians coming in. The Indians would always try and come in the club and they hated paying the entrance fee. Because, you know, they come from an impoverished country as it is. They come to Hong Kong to make their fortune. They probably work in a restaurant earning next to nothing, right? Um, but the try the tries just had a real disliking for them. So I, I, I held the pen out to this guy Daisu and I said, Yando Yan. And I just mimicked shoving it up his bum, right? And he just starts laughing and then he then he takes the pen, right? Um so yeah, that was that's kind of the, the closest we we sort of got. How did your work with the triads end? Oh I became too ill, Sean. There was one night where this guy Drick keeps going. He he knows now that I'm on the drugs and he keeps saying things like, Chris, you know, I had a problem with the alcohol. Apparently the 14K had found him sleeping in McDonald's and they'd given him a job. This is how gangs work. You know, they recruit from people who've got nothing in their life, right? And they'd given him a job, they got him a flat and he was like the proud to work for them now, right? And he's saying, Chris, you know, I like a drink, yeah? Wink, wink, but... I don't do it before work. And I used to think, yeah, like crystal meth's that simple, right? <laughs> it was just a different kettle of fish. But then I got to thinking, uh, despite everything that went on, I, I like this job, Sean, you know? I don't know that much. I, 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 jury's out on what the hell that was all about, if I was honest, right? But I liked it. I liked being the front man of a, of a Hong Kong nightclub staffed by head cases. It... It, and I didn't want to lose the job. So one night I thought, right, I've got to knock the meth on the head. When you come off, a, you know, when you're coming out of addiction, Sean, you have these moments and you have a lot of them. You know, relapse is all a part of of, of getting your psychology around what, what's been happening to you, right? But this one time, this is like one of the first time I actually looked myself in the mirror. Well, I would have done if I hadn't smashed it. But, and I said, Chris, come on, you've got to sort this out, mate. You know, you've you, you got people that like you and they, they're trying to help you and they can see the way this is going and you've got a boss that gives you money to get your furniture. So, a bit stupidly, Sean, I just decided to knock it on the head. But you can't do that with meth because you're so tired. You are literally, you know, you haven't slept for maybe five or six days. You haven't eaten more than maybe a, like a, a croissant or something from the Seven Eleven that you've had to force down you because your mouth is so dry, right? You, you know, I, I know you, you you know where I'm coming from, right? So I rocked up at work twenty four hours after knocking it on there, you know, for my next shift. Basically, I was fine to get there. You still got a bit of meth buzzing around your bloodstream, right? And I stood there and I just suddenly started to feel tired. Before I knew it, I was too tired to stand up, Sean. So I took myself in the in the back room. It was where they kept all the sort of beer crates and stuff. Um, and I sat down on this crate of Schweppes or something, and I'm like, and my head is just rolling from sight. I, I I couldn't get it together, and I'm not going to right. And as I'm sat there, and I've been there about an hour, you know. Let's be honest, I'm pretty fucking not good to anyone, am I really? 
even though my heart isn't, you know, my intentions were right. And one of the bar staff just came in and said, uh, uh, Quissa, uh, the boss say, you no need to work here anymore. I was like, all right, Sid, thanks. And it's just like, oh, Chris, you just lost another job, you know. And then when I sat outside, I sunk down against the front of this shop and I'm just sat on the dirt in the pavement. And I thought, you know, it's tempting to feel sorry for yourself at times like this, Sean, but I just thought, my nan always said life ain't fair. <laughs> why would you want it, you know, why would you expect it to be? So, ah, you know, and that was my attitude and picked myself up and, you know, you're going to, you, you, you're going to hear different things. If you read the tabloids, they, like one of the famous lines was, oh, it, 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 it was something like the Sunday sport. It made me laugh. And it was, um, you know, when you're trying to promote your book, Sean, you're going to take this interview and that you, sometimes you do them with publications. You wouldn't really read yourself and you wouldn't, you don't sort of condone that whatever, whether it's sexism or this, but you know, we all kind of, compromise ourselves a bit at times right I, I just wanted to make it as an author so I've done every interview that I've been asked to do and this one interview said it was like I was too hardcore for the Hong Kong triads because right? <laughs> <laughs> like I've never even read my book it's all every, everything I've told you it's all in there this is just the you know the media take your story and they want to sell you know TV programs radio shows things and they'll um so so yeah that was quite um quite funny but the truth is just what i told you i was fuck sean so what did you do next um i'll keep this short because i have just told this story to our good friend james english and um probably no point going 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 over everything i told him but one of the things i ended up in my mind my marines training specifically the commando crawl that we're taught in training at Limston. That's where you lay your stomach onto a rope and you crawl across a canyon. The idea is like you're getting onto a ship or you're crossing a valley in the, you know, in a ravine in the nature or something, right? My my psychosis is telling me, well, on I should say, on the roof of my building, um, there was a wire it went from my building to the building opposite and plastic cuff to it was a hose pipe so for some reason my building is feeding feeding water to that other rooftop um i'm guessing it's because it, a lot of the homeless population live on the roofs in hong kong sean right so there's some kind of arrangement that this guy's feeding that guy water or whatever i, I don't know but excuse me so I get it into my head, and my this this third voice is telling me, if I can do the commander crawl across this wire, and I'm on the top, you know, this is the top floor, Sean. So we're we're saying it's a twenty story building. I'm lying on that wire. I'm looking down, and the people in the street below they look like ants. The cars are tiny. It's swaying from side to side, and I'm starting to inch across it. And what my mind's telling me is. If I can get to the other side, I'm going to suss all this conspiracy, right? It's, yeah. 
<laughs> the funny thing was, it gets even more. Let's let's make it hilarious because it's you know you got to laugh, right? Mm. But there was a woman in the the flat opposite mine, and in her kind of pebble, I don't know what you call that bathroom window effect, you know, the thing. frosted frosted window. She there was obviously a mirror behind this window, and this woman used to brush her hair in the mirror every night, right? But the microphone in that cellar, it looked like she was singing into a microphone. So my psychosis is telling me this is not over. And she was a, you know, large woman, can we say. So my psychosis saying this isn't over until the fat lady sings, <laughs> right? And it's little cliche sound bites like that, that when you're this ill, really take on new meaning, Sean, and you're reading all this like stuff into them, right? So I'm, I'm that unwell. I'm about to try and crawl across this wire 70 meters above the ground and to see the fat lady sing, doing my commander train because my psychosis now is telling me the Marines was nothing about going to fight wars or, you know, my, my combat in Northern Ireland. No, Chris, it's about this moment in your life. It's prepared you, it's trained you. And I've got this image that when I get across this wire, it's almost like the heaven's going to open and everybody I know is going to come <laughs> rushing towards me, clapping and saying, Chris, you made it, mate. Well done. You know, we doubted you there for a minute, but you've come good, you know? Wow. Yeah, this is, uh, this is how childhood, childhood trauma manifests, you know, when you, when you take crystal meth, right? So I, I'm starting to crawl across this wire. It's really hard because the plastic cuffs were like digging into my, 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 my skin. It wasn't just like shinning across a rope, right? And I get about five meters out and I'm swaying there, looking down at the cars. So if you drop off this, you're dead. Oh, not that. I, would, I wouldn't have dropped off it, Sean. My, my training was, even if I fell off and was hanging on by my arms, the Marines teach you how to get back on it. We call it a regain, right? That's not the issue. The issue is I didn't set this thing. I don't know. How secure it is. I didn't know how secure it was. I didn't know if it's going to snap, right? And probably need to cut a long story short here, but I started thinking about my kid brother, you know. He's um, six years, six months and six days younger than me. And when, you know, he's been like a rock in my life, Sean, he, even when we haven't seen each other, he's... He's my best friend, right? You know, that, that's what you, you, your brother essentially is. And I haven't, it just occurred to me, like, I haven't spoke to him for months. I don't, I think I've spoke to him once since I've been in Hong Kong. He's my best. And what am I doing now? I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to prove myself to, to, to who? What those fucking wankers in the club that set me up to be murdered? Or these expats doing all this funny thing? You know, and a lot of my friends desert, they, they are, well, they kept they're starting to keep their distance from me now, Sean, and I'll become a laughing stock, right? You know, this is how you know mental illness is just not understood, right? And I'm swaying on this cable, and I'm I'm thinking back to when we were kids, and our parents had split up for like the third time before you know finally getting divorced, and we used to get pulled out of primary school, right? Your mum's waiting for you in the car park. We'd have to hop on a train, go 300 miles away up north, live with our grandma. We'd get shoved into a new school. It'd always be the same. You know, the girls always took a shine to me. The boys always wanted to, you know, try and bully and fight me, so I'd have to stick up for myself. But one of the things that made that 
The, I'll, I'll tell you this, Sean, one of the hardest, most poignant moments of my childhood was when one of these times happened. My mum had got on a train. She'd shot up north, right, to be with her mother. My dad got me and my sister together and he said, he said, your mum's left me. You've got a choice, kids. You can stay here with me in Devon or you can go out to Lincolnshire. Oh, we'll, we'll stay with you. We're fucking kids, Sean, you know. We'll stay with you, Dad. You love your, you know, for whatever went on in my family. And there was a lot of ups and downs, Sean, you know. As I said before, it's it's all forgiven. So we don't even, don't go there, you know. But like, you love your parents, you know. And I'm a boy. My dad is, you know, my hero, right? We'll stay with you, Dad. Next day, calls us back in the kitchen. Guys. Your mother's on the phone. And I heard the phone call, Sean. My mother, it had never occurred to her we'd want to stay with our dad. And not because my mum was bad. It's we, we we love our dad. This is our home. We go to school here, right? I remember hearing my mum screaming down the phone at him. No, you'd not taken my kids away. So it was, sorry, kids. We're in the car, right? We used to have, like, crappy old Morris Travellers, the ones with the wooden timber on the back. I used to be embarrassed driving to school because... The, the fungus would grow out of the timbers, right? And on this occasion, I think we had a little Morris, uh, a little minivan that my dad had as a work car because he was always in the carpet business. He drove us 300 miles, Sean, to Lincolnshire, got to my grand's house. You know, 300 miles, you have a cup of tea, don't you? You have a little walk, chill out, you get in the car, maybe have a... Sl- my sister hops out of the car. Oh, I can't wait to see mum and grandma. Like, and I just remember thinking, you, you don't get it. You don't get it, sister. This, like, we're not going to see our dad again. And she went running, skipping into the house. And and I'm there, just stood on the pavement in sh- shock, you know. And my dad says, he just got the bags from the car and just dumped them on the pavement. And he said, I love you so much, son. And he hugged me. That's like the second hug I got off him. It's only the second time he hugged me in my whole life, Sean. You know, my parents were that generation, right? And he just hopped back in the vehicle. And as he drove down the road, I'm looking in the wing mirror and he's waving at me. He's crying his fucking eyes out, Sean, you know. And I'm there and I'm just like, you know, I wasn't trying to hold it together, but I'm holding it together. And my mum came out. She went, oh, where's your dad? Isn't he stopping for a cup of tea? And I'm like, <laughs> you know. Anyway, I just I say that to give you the idea of how powerful love is. Because when I'm on that wire, Sean, I'm thinking of my brother. I'm thinking of when we went to these strange schools. He was in the like the you know he'd be like four, you know, in the very baby year. Right, I I I was about ten by this time, so I was in the the boys thing. Right, it's a horrible school. They may used to make you sit in order of how smart you were from the 11 plus test so if you was the you know stereotypical thick kid you had to sit at the end of the class right this is how backward it was in the you know in the the 70s and this is coming into the 80s now and uh what what we used to do to make it not so lonely with all this divorce stuff going on is i they, they had a rule in the school that's the small kids playground this is the big kids not allowed to go in right I'm like, fuck adults. They're not stopping me seeing my kid brother, Sean, you know. 
So he used to sit halfway down out of one playground on the step and I used to sit halfway out of ours and we'd just spend our lunch times together and it, it wasn't so lonely and horrible and, you know, just having my little brother there with me. So I'm on this wire in Hong Kong and I'm looking down and I'm thinking, Chris, what, what are you doing? What, what are you trying to prove to who? Because they're fucking wankers and they're fucking wankers. You, you don't owe anything to these people. You owe your kid brother who's home in England and you haven't even spoke to him for months. If this wire snaps now, you're going to spiral to your death and they're, they're going to get a phone call back in England and say, oh, your brother became a drug addict in Hong Kong and he committed suicide, threw himself off a building. Mm. Sean, that wouldn't have been the case. I never lost respect for myself, you know? Even when I was chronically mentally ill, like, there's nothing wrong with me, you know? That's why I've never had any AA meetings, no, no NA no, 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 I've never seen a doctor, you know, I've seen doctors, they've given me medicine, I chucked it straight in the bin. Everything I've got in my life, I just, you know, repeat myself across 80 countries, seven continents, achieved everything on my bucket list. In fact, I'm the only person I know that has done that, right? Done it all myself, coming from this point that I'm telling you. And I'm thinking about my kid, and I just start crying, and I'm sweating on this wire. And the tears are just pouring out my fucking eyes, Sean. I'm like, I just miss my brother suddenly just so much. Mm. I just missed him, you know? Like, what am I doing? Proving myself to dickheads who think they're big, big men in nightclubs when they're fuck all, you know? They haven't been in the Marines. They've got no idea how hard it is to earn the green berry, right? And I'm, I'm like trying to impress her. I thought, I only owe one person in the world. That's my brother. And that's it. And I climb... I climbed back off that wire and went back into the apartment, smashed everything up in a, in what I now can recognise as a nervous breakdown, right? And it, that was the first of probably about three or four before I finally had my epiphany, you can say, and set off on the the journey to enlightenment, which has brought me to your good company, Sean. So from the high wire point, how much longer were you in that country i was about there another month my next job and you remember i'm still in psych sean you've got to remember mentally ill people aren't gonna hurt fucking anyone occasionally you get a you know you get this psychotic thing and they go and stab you know that is so rare statistically the reason i say that is my next job is i got a job as a school teacher and um I was teaching these kids, but I couldn't get it together because I'm rushing, I'm late all the time, and I've got this job. They love me, Sean, right? used to just um, go in a classroom, and Chinese is strict, right? It's it's done in a certain way. But I'd just be like, kids, should we go outside? They all, like, look at each other because, you know, you don't go outside and sit in the sports field, you know. It's just never been done before, right? I'm like, so we sneak out the classroom, right? I'm like, leave your bags, leave your bags. And we crawled under the windows of all the other classes. And we crawl in. You can hear the, the other Guaylo teachers going, right, today we're doing maths and two plus two is four. And I'm like, and we're sneaking out, right? The kids are going, shh, shh. And they're just <laughs> giggling their heads off, right? So got to the point where I couldn't make it to school one day. And I ran into the playground and all the classes had gone to class. You know, and I'm like, oh, I've lost another job. I've lost another job. And the head of English, who called Miss Lynn, 
she'd come walking across the playground to me and I said, Miss Lynn, I'm so sorry. I'm so, you know, I, I won't be late again. She said, oh, Chris, don't worry. She'd say, um, do you, you come back tomorrow. She, I have another teacher take your class, you know. If I do the accent, Sean, it's just, it, it, it's not, it, it, you know, Hong Kong just such a unique place. Just do it in an English accent. It doesn't doesn't have the same effect, right? Um, but yeah, so she said, yeah, come back tomorrow. It's okay. I'm like, okay. Thanks, Miss Lynn, right? And as I turned to her girl, she said, uh, Quissa? Yes, Miss Lynn? She said, um, the children say your class is their favorite class <laughs> and you are their favorite teacher. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, thanks, Miss Lynn. Like, Sean, I had to turn around because I was, I, I was, I burst into tears. You know, I, I just took like ten steps, and the tears are just coming down my face because I loved them kids. You know, I would have done anything for them. I, I loved being their teacher. It was giving back to the generation that you know our generation has so much stolen from us in that respect. You know, and the fact that I'm getting this amazing feedback. He's actually the person I want to be in this world, not this drugged up fucking clown that, that I, you know, and I walked away and I was just, just like so emotional. And anyway, I had that job. Um, that came to a head. I, I got so, I had such a bout of psychosis one day. But you're off the drugs. No, no, no. I'm still... I'd gone back on Christmas. You, you know, it's relapse, Sean. You, okay, you, relapse. You, you're yeah. never going to hit it the first time. It's, yeah. it's a learning curve. And this is fine, you know. It's what I teach people now. Relapse is fun. That's where you learn, you know. If you go to someone that says, right, stop. You've got to... It, 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 yeah, that can work and that can save people's lives. But what you lose then, you lose all the learning that comes from falling down. But that's another subject. Um, yeah, so I'm back on the crystal meth, you know, bunking with a friend because I got kicked out of the flat that I'd smashed up. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if I should tell you then because that's almost all my book, Sean. But, um, you know, just got to a point where I had to admit to myself this, none of it's working anymore. And at that moment, my dad had got in contact with me through a friend of mine. And uh, he said, Chris, how about like I, like I get you a, a, an air ticket to come home? I'm like, no, Dad. You know, I was there to make my fortune in Hong Kong. I was still intent on that, right? I'm like, you can't afford it. And, you know, we weren't a rich, we've never been a rich family, Sean. It's like a ticket from Hong Kong is like 800 quid or something, right? And uh, I'm like, no, Dad, you can't do that. He's like, look, look, I'll, I'll just put it on the card, won't I? I put it on the card. He said, look, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. I said, all right. And I sat there and I thought, so I, I, it's not working anymore, Sean, is it? You know, I burnt all my bridges. I've got no money. I'm bunking with my with a Chinese guy who, who you know, was my best friend at the time. And I'm, I thought, Chris, you you got to go back to the UK, mate. You know, you got to. And um, that was it. In that 10 minutes, my dad had booked a flight with Virgin I rocked up on the time that the flight left my you know my manic timekeeping I thought oh it's a five o'clock flight from Hong Kong you know back in then what was it It was the old Hong Kong Kai Tak airport real famous landing at Kai Tak right 
like an idiot. I rocked up there at five when the flight was due to leave. And the girl at the desk went, no, cannot. Flight gone already. I was like, gone? It can't, it can't be gone. My dad's paid, like... She said, wait, wait, one moment, one moment. She made a phone call by some freak of the, you know, the air traffic control timings. It was still on the apron, Sean. And okay, wait here. This guy from immigration come legging it down the, the concourse. When he picked out all these bags. It's all in a book, you know, but all these random bags. Ran me into his office. Went, okay, you no carry anything you shouldn't, should you? So I'm, no. You know, conveniently ignoring the little packet of crystal meth I've got stashed in my boot, right? <sighs> and uh, it, it, this is where 40 Nights comes in. This is where, you know, I left Hong Kong, Sean. I had no regrets. Um, fortunately, I didn't like hurt other than like not meeting Johnny Horsepower. I didn't, it's not like I hurt anyone, you know. I, I've no, nothing against Hong Kong, Hong Kong people. I'm just like Chris. Get on the plane, mate. It's another phase of your life. And that was it. It was funny when I got on the plane because it had been on the ground so long and because they then had to wait for me, I was the only person on the bus out to the plane, Sean. It was like the first time in a year in Hong Kong I was the only person on a bus. It was just mental. And uh, when I got on the, the, the plane, of course, I had all my luggage with me and the stewardesses, the air flight attendants, you call them now, don't you? They were like, uh, but... Where can we put it? They put it in their locker, their, their, the staff locker. They very kindly put my stuff in there, right? I took my seat and they'd already started serving drinks because the flight had been delayed so long, right? And I sat down and the stewardess is serving the guy behind me. And he, he says, yeah, gin and tonic, please. And, uh, and then I turned and I just happened to like catch his eye and he went, can I have some ice in that, please? And I went... Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's how unwell I was, Sean. I thought this was some, he was signaling me or that, that, that this was some little dig at me. And, and uh, yeah, full on and mental, as we say down in Devon. So what happened when your bag of meth ran out? I just, I was absolutely fine. Within like three days, all the psychosis had cleared. I, I was what you'd call the old, I mean, okay, I'd lost a lot of weight, but... Did you sleep for a few days? Um, I probably did, but it was a bit of a buzz being... You must have had this when you came out of prison, right? It was a bit of a buzz just being back in the UK. and Reverse was, culture shock. It was summer and it was nice and my family are trying to spoil me and go, no, don't. All I wanted to do is get a job, get back to Hong Kong, ASAP, get down the gym, put a bit of weight back on, get back on the door. You know, it, I loved Hong Kong, Sean, more than I could ever explain at least I did. I did then, right when when it was such a big thing in my life. Um, but no, I went probably about a week without drugs, maybe ten days. Then the little voice is like, "Oh, just a little bag of amphetamine would be nice." That will kind of sort, you know. And I I did it a couple of times, and then I I, I luckily I'd let my house go right. I just said the bank can just take it but I, you know I was too busy with triads and working girls and, and, and conspiracies and mm. I couldn't be worrying about a mortgage back home because my lodger had, or my person living in my house had up and left right and trashed it and all this sort of stuff but luckily my my dad really kindly got together with my uncle and they kept the interest payments going 
So I was thousands of pounds in 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 debt, right? So I still have my house, Sean, which is wow. just an amazing thing they did for me because that's really helped me, obviously, in subsequent years. And uh, you yeah. still in that house? No, no. I was in it for for many years, and then uh, when when I met my my gorgeous girl, she came round one day to that house, and uh, I said, "Jen, I'm thinking of sorting a few things out, getting rid of." She said, "Yeah, I think you should because I'm pregnant." I was, I was like, "Who's the lucky guy?" She said, "It's you." I'm like, "Oh, wow!" You know. <laughs> And as you know, that's another episode of this crazy... How did you control the impulse to go back to Hong Kong then? It just never happened, Sean. I, I entered what I now know was a chronic depression. Yeah, I've been living a high life for, for a year. I've been in 24-7 in the most exciting nightclub district in the world with the roguest of characters, the most interesting of expats, the girls who used to come out dancing. It, it, it was... You know, you want a beer at three in the morning, you just walk down the road and you grab a, go to the 7-Eleven, grab a beer, Sean. You know, you want to call your mate, you want to hook up with your mate, well, he'll probably be in that nightclub dancing. I'll go, you know, it it was just that, to come back to England, I had no qualifications other than, you know, I mean, I had two O-levels and three GSEs. I did the GCSEs in, in the Marines. I had no trade. I felt I had nothing to offer anyone. And I just hit a depression and that, and the only way I could like raise my head off this sofa bed that I slept on for 18 months was when I could get some, what's called base in the UK, which is the strongest form of amphetamine, but it's about, you know, 20% as strong as ice, right? And, uh, yeah, 18 months I did that for Sean and Hong Kong, despite what I've told you was quite. It's a bit of a blast. Living in the UK, chronically addicted to drugs, massively depressed, n- and not understanding why, because no one, no one back then could explain what depression was to you. So you didn't know why you felt this emptiness and this lack of direction, right? So uh, yeah, that's that's all in forty nights. Can we talk about triathlon now? <laughs> I want to talk about something positive. I was going to ask you, <laughs> well, we got a few dark stories here left. Did you want to just do those on another occasion? Um, you can, is it, uh, Lee was a bad episode, yeah. yeah. You and Lee taking the LSD. Yeah, Lee was, uh, uh, as you go through life, Sean, you know, you forget what you think from Facebook. You realise you've got 10 best mates and you can count them on, you know, your best mates, you can count them probably on one hand, maybe two not these thousands of likes and whatever, right? And Lee was one of them guys. We drove to India together. We uh, uh, won't go into this, but when I got when I finally had my epiphany and I started going into the light instead of staying in the dark, right, I wanted to go and help kids in Africa. So I, I did a charity fire walk and I walked 120 feet over red-hot coals to earn the money to attend a school in Norway that trained you as a volunteer worker to go and work in Africa. While I was there, they said, would you drive a bus to India? So Lee and I drove a bus from it, from Norway to India. And then Jesus, how long does that take? About three and a half months in total. Three and a half months? Took a lot longer than anticipated. So the bus has got to go on boats and stuff, has it? Uh, 
around Greece and Italy. I think we got a ferry to Italy or from Italy to to Greece rather. Yeah, from Italy to Greece. Drove to Ath- uh, Venice. You know, had a day. In Who Venice. was on the bus? There were about started off with sixteen volunteers, volunteer journalists. So our role, I was the driver. Lee was the driver. Our role was to write articles about people living in poverty and kind of exchange culture. It was the early days of the internet, so the school had a kind of website set up. And we didn't actually do a lot of that because it was a 1978 British Leyland bus. Not a good advert for Leyland. It broke down almost every day, Sean. So Lee and I, Lee, Lee was from Manchester. And we were fellow bad boys, you know. We'd we'd done a bit of life, got to the point where we couldn't cane the drugs anymore, and we we'd had this enlightenment. We wanted to help others, and that's why we were on this this journey together, fixing this bus every day, covered in grease. We spent three and a half weeks in a garage, in a garage in Turkey, living with a mechanic. So there was you know immigrant <laughs> immigrant mechanics sleeping on the floor, and it it was. It's it's stuff for another book, right? But anyway, we we drove to Indra and back, Lee and I, and we always kept in touch. And he was a dear friend because he's one of them ones. He would just call you out the blue, which is quite a rare, you know, doesn't tend to happen now, right? Chris, yeah, been out last night. You know, how are you doing? And he'd tell me about his latest girlfriend and this sort of thing. Anyway, we had this uh, relationship that pretty much any time we got together, We'd bash the drugs, Sean. You know, it's just what it's just what we did, right? What I did back back at that stage in my life, right? Bit, I live a bit of a healthier lifestyle now, I guess you can say. He he came around my place in Plymouth. He drove down from Manchester once, and we're going to go out. You know, this is this is like Thursday night. We're going to go out down to Plymouth Union Street, the nightclub area, and. Uh, should we pop a pill before we go? Yeah, yeah, good idea. You know, and Lee would have popped too because he always overdid it, Sean. And I used to get, I was worried about you know, like Lee, you don't know how strong them pills are, mate. Come on, just. And he sometimes he'd spin out and just start throwing up everywhere as we're walking to a nightclub and this kind of thing, right? But yeah, that 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 long weekend he came. We never got out of the house. We just caned all these pills. Drinking, drinking, ordering in a takeaway, watching DVD after DVD. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like you know when we got together, we we kind of bashed it a bit. Anyway, round about the time I was studying at university, I was studying youth work. Right, got a phone call. Chris, it's Lee. Boom Festival. I'm like, what are you on about? It's a psychedelic trance festival in Portugal. I'm like, okay, I've, I've never heard of psychedelic trance. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone knows trance music. Psychedelic trance. I, I got some up on the, you know, internet, listened to it. It was, I'm going to say, it just wasn't my thing, Sean. I was like into uplifting spiritual house and dancing all night, right? And this is like boom, 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 boom. It's almost like hardcore, grungy um you know, techno sort of, sort of music. Um, but anyway, I, of course, just, I look forward to being with Lee and we're going to drive down to Portugal together. And he'd become friends with this third lad. Let's just call him 
I know. Steve, right. And so I'm waiting there in Plymouth. They're driving down the line. I'm like, come on, guys. And we had, you know, obviously you could text people then. Where are you? Traffic, mate, you know. I say that because I had those texts on my phone for, for a while, as you, you're going to find out. And uh, so they rock up. They've got all these spliffs ready rolled. His mate's got a brand new, it wasn't quite a kind of Lexus, but it wasn't far off it, you know, one of these all, all gadgetry sort of cars. And we're all taking the turns in driving. Hit the ferry, got across to France. Got to a place called, I think it's called Biarritz, or I, I'm, it's, it's north coast of France, right? We parked up, we've been driving, you know, all day. And Lee says, we'll go for a swim. Yeah, okay. So we put our shorts on, went down to the sea. And uh, we had a little swim. And I, I turned around and looked at Lee, and he's sort of doing this doggy paddle thing, right? So you're, you, you're right. He says, oh, Chris, I've just uh, taught myself to swim. I've only, I couldn't swim all my life. I've just been doing it in the last couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Obviously, you know, didn't think anything more of it. Got down to Portugal, got to this festival. By this time, the guy that we're with, and this is not, I'm, I'm not disrespecting him or anything, Sean. It was just, he was becoming really problematic, a bit rude, a bit obnoxious. He, he, he had issues. He was in a wheelchair. Um, and he's like, and they'd fallen out. And it was just, anyway, we rocked up at this festival town place and it was, by a beautiful lake and the festival was on one side of the lake and all the people that gathered there the day before camped on the other shore waiting for the gates to open and then there'd be this big line of um, cars in fact a lot of people just left their car in the middle of the road because there was so many people going to this festival and we pitched our tent we'd bought a couple of beers some geezer came around, some Portuguese guy might have been French. It's just everyone of all different cultures there at this, um, at, uh, you know, on this lakeside. Obviously, a lot of Euro Euro Europeans, right? Traveller types, this kind of thing. Guy comes up, guys, Coke, LSD, you know, Coke, um, MDMA. So we bought a little bit of this and a, you know, a little bit of that. I think we did a line of Coke, drunk a couple of beers, and, uh, go for a walk so we walk down the beach the guy in a wheelchair had an electric this special motor on his thing saying he could pretty much go cross countries and that wasn't an issue we found these two djs that set up like this tent on the beach and they were blaring out psytrance which was the thing we're tired you know we've been in the car i think three days now or two and a half days or something we slept in the car couple of hours sleep so weren't really feeling like partying but then uh this guy appeared so it's getting into the evening now right? this guy appeared and he looked he reminded me of a court jester because he had his pinstripe like pantaloon things on and um it's colorful you know people that go to these kind of festivals it's all about color and imagery because it's all or a big part of it is centered on lsd right now that's not, wasn't massively my thing, Sean, right? I'm always sort of that guy that's always going to try. Do you know what I mean? If there's something there, okay, just 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 a bit, right? Only because 
it's just not it's not my drug. I had a really bad experience on it years ago, and I think it I think it can psychologically damage you that stuff, right? And uh, so we're at this 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 um, DJ tent, and we're sort of dancing as you do. And this guy came over, and I think he was French, and he said, uh, and he like nudged me, and I looked down, and he'd put a, a line of ketamine on his hand, right? So I'm like, oh, okay. And I looked at Lee and went, well, what what is it? I've never seen ketamine before at the, this stage, right? And, and Lee's like, it's ketamine. So have you have you done some? Well, of course he had. Lee would always do everything, right? He said, "Yeah, all right then." So I snorted it off this guy's hand, and within seconds, wow, it was just amazing. It wasn't like going down the K hole or anything like that. It was just a, a light, you know, pick me up. Next thing you know, you're dancing, and it's just you're just chucking out these shapes that you you just didn't know were in you. It was, it was <laughs> incredible, right? This went on a little bit. All the women just, I think they were pretty stunning anyway, Sean. You know, these are not Latin, Latino isn't the right word, but, you know, Spanish, Portuguese. And it was just so friendly. All the guys, you know, just like being in a dance party, right? And uh, next thing I know, Lee's banging my elbow. He says, do you want some liquid acid? I'm like, oh, here we go. It was bound to happen, wasn't it, you know? And when you looked around, you could see a lot of these party people all carrying these little brown vials with this, the squeezy eyedropper thing. And there's a science to it, Sean, or there's a kind of chemistry to it that you measure out a certain amount of milligrams depending on where you are in your buzz for the weekend. Because if you hit it too hard, like in the first day, your tolerance goes up and you can't feel it again, right? So it was they were all really seriously or oh, it seemed like everyone was seriously into this stuff. So when in Rome, right? And uh, I said, Lee, you've done some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I put my hand out and I said to the guy, this friend, I said, a little, right? I just want a, a drop, Sean, do you know? And he drenched my hand. It was running off my mm. fingers in, in, a, in a river, right? Mm. And I'm like, dude, dude. And I went like that. I just took one, you know, one lick, maybe a, a dab a lick. The other guy we were with, this this third guy, Steve, we called him, didn't we? Just grabs my hand and sucks it all off, right? He's like <laughs> immune to this stuff. <laughs> and this is where, you know, things changed a bit because the next thing I knew, I was waking up on the beach and I was on like a pile of rocks on the on the shore of this lake. And I'm I'm out of it, mate. I've I've collapsed. I've hit the deck, right? I know to anyone listening, that's not something you you know you associate with it. What collapse? No, I, I was out. I, I I must have done that, right? And I got up, and and you know, obviously now I'm. He's drenched my hand. It goes in through the skin, right? I'm in the just the biggest trip that you could ever I- I- imagine. And I've just been unconscious. And I woke up and I looked and I suddenly saw Lee was lying on the rocks about two metres from me. I'm like, Lee, you're right, you're right, dude. Lee, you're right, man. And he went, no, no, I'm not. I'm not, Chris. 
I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, this has all just suddenly got really serious. There's a party literally just over there with hundreds of people and we're here and we're, we're fucked, mate, you know? So I said, come on, Lee, 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 let's get back to the tent, man. Let's get back. I just thought if we can get back to the tent, can't, you know, just, just get back to the base, right? Anyway, my memory's a bit hazy about how it actually happened, but I managed to get Lee up. We got back to this party, Sean. And started to like loosen up a bit, you know, M massively tripping, like I'm like never ever before, right? But not in that kind of you know unconscious state, obviously. And I'm there, and I suddenly just started to have the best night of my life. I know you have a few best nights of your life when you when you party, right? And it's hard to put your finger on one, but this was, it was just amazing, mate. The girls are all coming up, hugging you and giving you kisses. The blokes all look fucking handsome as fuck and they're coming out right you know and, and and giving you cigarettes and you're dancing and it was just amazing it was absolutely went from being in hell to suddenly this is like the best party in the world and then uh i looked at lee and he sort of like looked like he's gibbering to himself a bit i didn't think much of it and then um and this is, Sean, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I remember because this is all over a night, right? This went on until the next morning. But suddenly, I looked at Lee and his, like, lips are cracked, right? I'm like, Lee, drink some water, man. Drink some water. He goes, oh. And he's, he's just gibber, gibberish, right? Say so to the, the other guy, look, look, he's... Steve, is Lee all, all right? Oh, no, he's, he just, he always gets fucked, Chris. He's always like this, mate. Just don't, don't worry. I'm, I'm going back to the tent to get some kit, right? He could sleep on this, this, you know, on this, this trip, right? So he went back to the car. Next thing I know, Lee runs at this stranger. This, oh, right? Hell. It was a Portuguese lad who had his mo moped on the beach, right? And he stood holding his moped. Lee runs at him, just fucking plants the guy. <gasps> And I'm like, did I just see what? And I run over and I separate the guy's mates. And it's mellow. It's a party, Sean. It's mellow. But of course, they're not going to, they can't just let their mate get attacked. So they're all like, right, you know, up for the scrap. And I'm jumping in the middle. Guys, 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 I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Lee, calm the fuck here, mate. Calm the fuck down. Right? Calm the fuck down. What is the matter with you? <laughs> you know? And... And then we carry on the party, and I'm just going to cut this short, short, short. But at one point, I looked at him and went, Lee, are you all right, man? And he just went, <laughs> bang, and he stuck the nut on me, right? Oh, Fucking hell. And my best mate, who I love to bits, and he loves me, it's just stuck the nut on me in a party. And it didn't, it wasn't like it hurt or anything. I just like pulled my head back. I'm like, Lee, fucking calm down, man. Calm down, right? And it was, um, um, you've got to remember, Sean, I'm tripping off my face. I've never been this, you know, fucking bollocks before. Right? Like LSD, right? It's a full-on thing, and I'm trying to make sense. So I, I don't have that ability of just, like, rational, right, we're going to do this, this, and this, and, and you know, in, you know, in hindsight, should have just jumped on the twat, you know, and dragged him back to the ten and just sat, watch, what, what whatever, so then this this went on, didn't attack any more p 
people and I'm like apologizing to the people he, he's uh, and and then as it started to get towards morning he came back and I noticed his shorts were wet but I didn't think anything of, of you know he, I didn't think anything of it Sean and uh, of course he's been for a swim hasn't he you know in, in his state he's been he's tried to he, he, he like he's learning to swim and in his mind for some reason he's He's obviously been in the lake and he came back. And um, it just got to the point where I started to realise, he, 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 even though I was off my head, mate, I could tell this is this is bad. He's he's not He's gone over the edge and he's not coming back. And as morning came, I wouldn't say like my trip wore off any, but I was making sense of things more. All these girls were just stripping off, running in the lake. The blokes were following him. It's just the most idyllic scene. People still coming up, hugging you and all this. And yet there's me with my mate who ain't well. And I, and I didn't, you know. So I'm like, right, Lee, come on. Let's get back to the tent. Let's get to this festival, man. Come on, let's get back. And he broke away from me and just ran off. So I'm thinking, oh, shit, right. Okay, what to do, what to do, what to do. Right, I'm going to go and tell Steve, this is fucking serious now. We need to make a, a plan. So I went back to the car. Steve had been in the car. He had the radio on all night, listening to the radio, chain smoking his spliffs. And I said, Steve, man, like, Lee ain't Lee ain't well. Ah, fuck him. He's always like this, Chris. He always overdoes it. He'll be fine. He said, come on, get the shit packed up. Let's get to the festival. Fuck him. He, he can... I'm like, mate, you don't understand. I'm not pissing around. He He's like seriously unwell. I think we're going to need to fucking call the police, mate, or or an ambulance. He's like, no, nah, don't be stupid. Don't be daft, right? As we're having that conversation, this girl appears, starts walking towards the car, right? And it's this pretty little French girl. She says, uh, excuse me. Um, no, 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 sorry. Before I spotted her, suddenly on this idyllic, beautiful, tranquil lake, fucking sirens broke out. I mean, like, you know, like in a film, Sean. And I looked, and down the track that led to this lake, there's a police car hammering it, skids on the beach, wheel spins, and he just drives flat out down the beach, followed by another one, followed by another, all blue lights on, all sirens wailing, Behind them, there's two ambulances. Behind that, there's another police car. I went, oh, fuck. He's dead. And Steve's like, oh, fuck off, man. I said, Steve, he's fucking dead. Either he's dead or he's fucking killed someone. So Steve starts rolling another spliff, right? I'm sat there thinking, and as I'm sat there getting my thoughts, this French girl approaches. She says, "Have, have you got a friend? I said, yes, we have. Is, is he dead? She, Jesus. She said, has he a, a tattoo on his leg? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is is he dead? She's like, um, you, you just must get to the lake. <sighs> so, like, I knew he was dead, Sean, you know. Jesus. And uh, Steve tries to start the car. Of course, it won't start because he's been listening to the, the his CD player all night, right? I was like, just, just, just wait here. I'll go. And I did like, like the long walk, I suppose you call it, off my 
fucking nut, mate, right? What a situation. As I'm walking through these tents, people picnicking, you know, getting ready, all getting, starting to pack up to go into the festival. They're all just stood there and they're looking like this. Like they already know, right? And and I walked down. I had to walk about a quarter of a mile and I finally got to an ambulance and the, the driver was stood by the door. And uh, I can't remember if I spoke, I spoke Portuguese because of working in Mozambique, right? I just asked the guys, is my friend dead? And he said, yeah. And I looked, turned my head and there there was a blue like a plastic tarpaulin laid out on the, on the shore. And uh, I just walked over. As I approached, I could see his tattoo sticking out of the tarpaulin, you know. And I just lifted it up. Lee, you fucking idiot, man. You fucking idiot, you know. Gave him a kiss, Sean. Fucking rolled a cigarette, you know. And, uh, it's like, shit's just got fucking real, you know. So I'm sat there rolling this cigarette, and this group of Portuguese walk up to me, really lovely young people, mate, and they're like, it, it is your friend? Yeah. Oh, we're so sorry, you know. We saw him in the water, he's struggling. Uh, we all rushed in to try to to help him, but we couldn't get to him. And by the time we pulled him out, you know, the guy said, I, I was, I'm trying to give him mouth to mouth and all this puke is just coming in my face, you know. And uh, I think we swapped like email addresses or something. And then the press rock up and this, this camera shoved in my face with this big boom, you know, microphone. Uh, excuse me, is this your friend? Can you say a few words for Portuguese television? I said, no, love, I can't. Get out of my way. And she just like knew to just, you know, ju just leave it. And uh, so I'm there, I thought, oh God, I, Steve doesn't know, does he? Shit. So I started walking back towards the car. And one of the policemen said to me, look, can you get to the nearest police station? It's about 20 miles away in the nearest village. In the nearest town, rather. I said, yeah, of course. So I started walking back to the car. And by this time, uh, Steve had got it hot-wired, you know, or jump-leaded jump with someone. And he's driving towards me, and he stopped the car, and he just, like, looks like that. He went, you what? So he's dead, mate. Dead? No, he can't be dead. I said, I told you he was, it was serious. It's fucking dead. And then <laughs> this guy just broke down, Sean, you know, like just a, the just scream the place down, you know. And uh, yeah, so I hopped in the car, like, mate, we got to go to the police station, give statements, and we're going to go to the morgue and see Lee. We drove into town, and I'll tell you what. You know, I'm trying not to be angry with this guy, Sean, but it was like, I told you we needed to do something, and you just fucking laughed and said, fuck it. I'm, I'm not blaming him, Sean. It's it's not about that. I'm just saying this is how it was at the time, right? Stopping a car every, like, 
two miles to just cry his eyes out and then roll a spliff and then we drove into town. They had this one-way system. I'm still off my head, Sean. You know what it's like at the best of times trying to make sense of things when, when, you, when, when you're tripping, right? We, we just got caught in this loop. It was like Groundhog Day. We drove around and got back to this place. Okay, right, now try that way down there. We drove around there. We got... In the end, and I'm like almost, you know, just shaking with the, not, not, I wasn't shocked at all. It wasn't like, I'm, I'm just seeing a situation. I, I, I said he's going to die, you know, but I'm, it's just, it's, you know, we're trying to get to the bloody police station. We can't even get there. And this, I guess the stress is like building up, right? And we just stopped the car. This guy climbed out of a Land Rover and walked over. He said, and he, he, he said, can I help you, Portuguese guy? He says, uh, I'm a policeman. Do you, would you like some help? We're like, yeah, could you take us to the police station, please? He's like, sure, follow me. It's like an angel out of the, you know, an angel when you needed it, Sean, you know. And uh, so we followed him and he took us to the, the police station. I was sat in a waiting room, waiting to go and give my statement. Still tripping balls. Oh, man, you, all day long, right? And there's two posters on the wall. And this poster here is one like Don't Drink Drive, one of those kind of ones. And it's the one where the face is normal on one side and it's all just scarred and, and you know, ragged on the other side. And it's all just doing this. And the eyes are just staring right at me. I don't know. Oh, look at the carpet instead. It was a rug, wasn't it? Like a Persian type, one of those like Persian type rug effect things. Like a paisley effect is what what I mean, and the rug is going, <laughs> and all the colours are just moving around. Oh, look at that poster! Oh, all oh, right, that's not going to help. This is a "Don't Beat Your Wife" poster, you know, some like Jesus. domestic fucking violence thing. Are you trying to like and this o- organise what you're going to say in your head? Yeah, ah, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to wing it, Sean. You know, what what else can I do, right? And I'm looking at this girl, and she's been battered by by a husband. I'm like, oh, right, you're not doing me any favours, you know. And, uh, yeah, that was it. They, they went in, gave a statement. They're very relaxed, actually, on drug laws in Portugal, but we you, we kind of weren't to know this. And this didn't stop them asking us, so, you know, had he done any drugs? In my mind, I'm like, like I'm fucking going to admit that in a foreign country. <laughs> Um, plus the fact that you know that's what an autopsy's for, right? So I was like, no, 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 a few beers, a few beers. You're like, oh, okay, okay. And then uh, that was it. Gave statements. They they attached someone from the embassy to us, and again, he was like an angel, mate. You know, it was just just helping you deal with little things like where to go, and he got us a hotel. So we went from this three-day bender where we're all just smashed, mashed up, tired, hallucinating, to walking into this top hotel, air conditioning, um, straight to the bar, you know, goes kind of goes without saying. And uh, then we hit the morgue and went just to, just to see Lee, really, you know. Mm. And it wasn't pretty because they'd, they'd done the autopsy immediately by this stage and a full-on autopsy it's 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 just not nice you know just that and uh, that's your mate you know 
And uh, yeah, then we went back to the hotel. And of course, I'd never met any of Lee's family. I just knew him from, you know, mm. being out and about in the world and, and, and him visiting me in Plymouth. So I, and this was like early days of Facebook, this kind of thing. So it wasn't like we knew who to contact. But unbeknown to us, the embassy had contacted his family but hadn't told them why. So I'm there with this guy, Steve, in the room. Mm. Fucking fungos, doesn't it? Steve, like, looked at me. It was next to his bed, so I was like, yeah. So I took it. Hello? Yeah, a call from the UK for you? It's Lee's mum. Mm. She's like, hi, you know, is everything all right? Lee's drowned, I'm afraid. Fuck me, Sean. You have never heard a human being in that much distress in your life. I could hear the scream across the room mm. and I could hear the scream as she turned and, and the family realised she wouldn't have had to say anything. You could hear it in that that like animal bellow. Mm. Oh, you could hear the, the scream going through the family, you know. And... Uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was uh, my mate Lee. I can't imagine. And then you got your hustle on. I, Sean, I, 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 I hope <sighs> when I made a, a, I put a video about this, right, and that's because there's quite a few podcasts where hallucinogenics came up, come up, mm. especially the ayahuasca thing. It's, it's quite, and I'd, I'm not, I have no view on, you know, if you people want to take drugs, fine. That's you, you live your life. I'm going to live mine. Right. And then that, that's fine. I've got no, um, you know, I've got my views on it all. Obviously it's not about prohibition or anything, but I just want to tell one of the other side of the story. So people can see that there is that, you know, for some people it is going to trigger off a, a mental, a mental episode. And, it's a lottery because you don't know if that's going to be you, right? So all I'd say to Annie, if you're going to do that shit, be with someone who can take charge of you if it all goes Pete Tong, you know? Um, yeah. So you were making money smuggling tobacco from Belgium. <laughs> yeah, this was... Um, yeah, this was... Uh, yeah, interesting part of my life, Sean, really. To... As I started to come out of this depression in the UK and I was, you know, using various fixes on myself, learning new stuff, forgiving lots of people, which is a big part of moving on with your life, right? Learning to appreciate my days, smiling. I've got a rule to this day, I smile at the sun every morning. Well, I don't, but it's it's the philosophy, Sean. You know what I'm saying? Appreciate that you get one chance on this planet. You know, you've got to get out there and you know, smash your life because no one's going to do it for you, right? And when it's gone, it's gone. So I'm starting to formulate this way of thinking now. I'm I'm appreciating my days. Instead of getting up to drugs, I'm, I'm making a nice cup of tea, Sean, and I'm appreciating that, oh, well, that's my drug now, you know? And uh, putting a, putting distance between my binges, you can you can say, and, and in by putting that distance in, my life just got better. Friends came back. I was able to fix my house up. 
money starts coming in. You can buy new. hadn't bought clothes for three years, right? And one day I met a guy. Um, I think it's Carlos in my book, Gangster Carlos, right? Guy that my brother knew, and he he came around uh, to my brother's house. He starts pouring all this contraband tobacco on the floor. So I'm like, dude, where did you get that? He's like, oh, we smuggle it in from Belgium. I'm like, really? He said, yeah. He said, he said, um, I'm always looking for extra hands if you're up for it. I'm like, well, how much you pay? Back then, we're talking, you know, this is what back in the late nineties. So even thirty quid a day then, Sean was when you're, you know, when you're on benefits. That's quite a, quite a, a, an extra amount of money to have every month, right? So I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm up for it, and that's it. He he gave me the call, and uh, I joined this kind of like it's about like a six man gang. His uncle is a big face in Plymouth, one of the sort of original Ballstool boys, mad guy. Used to just walk into like an electrical shop, pick up a telly, just walk out with it. And if anyone challenged him, he'd just keep walking, you know, just just tell him to F off, right? Mad, mad dude. But anyway, got this gang set up where they drive across through the Channel Tunnel cross France into Belgium, hit a tobacco warehouse there and load the car, you know, to the gunnels with tobacco, drive it back through uh, customs under the kind of, um, under the kind of idea, if we get stopped, we just say it's for personal use. Obviously, two and a half thousand packets of tobacco each wasn't for was clearly not for personal use but we were kind of exploiting the fact that the law was very vague around this because technically even though it's cheap as chips in Belgium I mean, it's like it was like 50p a pack compared to five pounds in the UK um, you you'd paid the tax in Belgium right so technically you hadn't actually committed a crime but of course you know customs is a bit of a law unto itself right so we'd Drive back to a backpackers or a um, a B and B in Dover. Dump this lot off. Hop in a car again. All you know. This this was like a twenty four hour, maybe thirty hour episode. No sleep or anything. You just drove back. <coughs> excuse me. Drove back through the t- Channel Tunnel again. Back into Belgium. Rock up at this warehouse again. Fill fill the car up. Go back through. All fingers crossed that you're not gonna, you're not going to get a pull by customs. And yeah, we were we were we were good. We never got that pull. Um, and of course, these thirty quid's are mounting up for me, Sean. And it means by this time I'd set my goal on going to Africa to work with these street children. And I needed to raise two thousand pounds to go to pay my school fees in in Norway. So this money's you know, it's a godsend for me, really. And uh, yeah, we, so we, we're we're doing it, and it all went well. Until then, one day it came came to a head. I can't quite remember how it was because Carlos drove a top of the range Beamer, right? And sometimes we took that across. And back in those days, Sean, it was like you hit the motorway, you just done a ton all all 
you know, there weren't as there was a few speed climbers starting to pop up then, but you just tanned it and then back again. Used to get home, not slept for thirty hours, have a slug of rum, smoke a spliff, crash out. And this one time, we were coming back, and as we pulled off the Channel Tunnel, which is a train for people who've not been on the Channel Tunnel, you 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 put your car on a train, right? There was the uh, cops were there, stood on the platform, and they just the guy held his hand up, stopped us, went right follow that car there so we followed that car this cop it was kind of like you know could we make a break for it and not just gonna have to try and lie our way out of this and um so yeah carlos followed this guy luckily i think on that day we had a really shitty car it wasn't the beamer i think he'd borrowed it off his uncle so it was it was a run around but it was still you know 1500 quid's worth of vehicle right and it's loaded to the gunnels with you know i don't know if it's thousands of euros where if i can't my mass isn't that good. yeah you know a couple of thousand euros worth of tobacco let's say and of course all our hearts are going oh do 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 followed that car he took us to a customs shed where the customs guys then took over and we had to sit sit on this bench in this massive warehouse in that warehouse there was about 50 other cars and just casting your eye over these cars it was obvious what all the owners had been doing right <laughs> what the bigger gangs did the liver the liver puddling gangs they would just hire um rental vans fill them up to the roof we're talking thousands upon thousands and they had just they were just playing the numbers game that if we get t- nine through and one gets stopped the money we're going to make off that nine, it easily pays for, you know, the one that we lose. And of course, because it's a rental company, you don't lose the vehicle. The rental company have got to go through this long, drawn-out, protracted process to try and get their vehicle back. <laughs> and I'm led to believe they did they, you know, they didn't bother, right? So we're in this big, big hangar, and there's all these rental vehicles lined up and and uh, sat on this bench and they're unloading the tobacco and the custom guy looked at Carlos and went, how many? Carlos just goes, ton in each. Basically, he was saying, look, we know you put the same amount in each bag because when you distribute it, in our case, back down in Devon, you know, you're going to hand this bag of 100 to this guy, bag of 100. So he was, Carlos was just making the guy's job easier, right? And then they um, took us in for interviewing and you don't, you know, Sean, you don't know how this is going to go, right? That's right. Right. So you've, you know, how long have you been smuggling tobacco? Sorry, smuggling. No, we're not smugglers. That's 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 for us, you know. And you know that you're lying. They know that you're lying, but you're just spouting the law at them, right? What what, what else can you do? do? And uh, it it was something like it's like right. Look, if you're going to stick with that story fine but we're taking a car we're taking everything in it and you you will release you on like a bail or, or something like this or i can't rem- remember the, the 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 way it all went but it was like and um, but you'll have to come back up and, and you'll all go to court and you can argue in court that two and a half thousand packets of tobacco is for personal use and we said well you know what's the alternative they said well the alternative is just leave it here and walk away. 
So they were kind of pulling a fast one with Sean because there wasn't a, you know, there was no hard and fast law, but they knew we were smuggling, you know, it was obvious. So we, I just looked at Carlos, he looked at me, I looked at the other couple of lads and we just started walk, walking out of that hangar. We had to walk into, I think it was like Maidstone or somewhere, we all stood at a bus stop. It was like something out of train spotting. We all, you know, we all stood in a bus stop. <laughs> waiting to get a bus to London so that we can, you know, get a coach back to Plymouth. Who took the hit on that one then? Uh, well, it would have been the guy that we worked for, so it was my mate's uncle. But they make so much on the other journeys, they're accepting that. Um, by this time, it had all started coming to a head. Customs were just really clamping down on it. And it's fine, I guess, if you're a big gang and you can afford to take those hits. But when you're a, you know, when you're a small merchant, shall we say, it's... um quite a lot to lose a car did you make it to africa yeah 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 what was that like um in a nutshell phenomenal sean you know it's funny you know it doesn't matter where you're going or you carry a you know you can be in paradise and it can be shit right it was hard at first because i i turned up at this beach um it's called nakala if anyone wants to look at that on Google Earth, Nicola Porto in, in Mozambique, incredibly poor. As you leave uh, Maputo, which is the city where I think you fly into, you get on a bus and as you, you go into the rural area, it just gradually just becomes nothing except scrub and desert and jungle. And then suddenly a mud hut appears and then another one and another. And, and I, I it it's such an eye opener, Sean. And there's people walking between these mud huts with a pot on their head. There's people carrying firewood, and they're all just dressed raggedly. And you're, well, where's the shops? Where's you know, where's the hotel? The, the, there's nothing, right? So I worked in one such village. My village was a fishing village on the edge of the coast. I chose that place. Um, because I wanted to be by the sea, right? So I used to go swimming with the kids in the school and snorkeling with the the, the divers. Would you'd get these snor- snorkelers rather that would make their own spear guns? Sean, they were so in, in, ingenious, um, and they would make their own diving masks out of a bit of perspex and wrap a bit of car, wow. you know, and then screw it together by by twisting wire. This sort of thing it was real eye opener. I'm slightly disappointed at first because we, our team had studied in Norway and that the house that we all shared, which is like a house isn't really the right word for it, but it was better than the mud huts, put it this way, but it wasn't what we'd think of a, a very basic chalet. We shared it with a Danish team and they studied in a different part of Scandinavia, obviously, and... It, it was one of those situations where on the first night together, they said, do you want to run down on this organization? And what I say to you, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It just seems to be the case in all walks of life, right? So this charity that we're working for that had start, started out in the 70s, it was all benevolent. It was all hippies that hitchhiked down to Africa because they wanted to build schools. It, it had all gone corrupt, Sean. They'd worked out this financial system where everyone was paying into this pot, and the the even at the very 
minimum if they scrape the interest off this pot it's a huge amount of money mm. it wasn't going to those africans you know uh, many of the teachers in in our uh, in this all the, the african teachers hadn't been paid for months it was it was disappointing and you know this is like a dream for me sean i've come from nothing I've raised the money, you know, I've done the, the trips to Belgium, I've done the fire walking. It, it was a I had a phenomenal time at this organization in Norway. Was, we we studied in a an old ski hotel on top of a mountain. Mm. So of course I could go out skiing every day, cross country skiing. We'd muck around in the sauna at night and then go and roll in the snow. We learn in Portuguese, obviously. We cook communally, so you cook for seventy other international volunteers. We used to put on plays, theatre. It was just amazing. It was all drug and alcohol free because they had a rule at this this school, and you don't need it, Sean. When you're in a good, when you when you've got community, you don't need all that stuff. You're just happy to sit down and have a cup of tea and chat with someone. And so to get out to Africa and be hit with all this information from these other teammates that this is all a big scam, really. And 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 do you know that, that there's so many people have tried to take this organization to court. Mm. Their track record on safety is just abysmal. Um, you know, to the point where people had died. The the headmaster at this school that I studied in, he got stabbed to death by a student because it was it was it was bizarre, Sean, you know, it was just bizarre. But I thought, right, Chris, what we're we gonna do here? I always say, Sean, have a plan B that backs up your plan A. So you can do your plan A, really, even if you have to reshape it, you know. And uh, I thought, right, you've come this way. You're in an amazing part of the world, albeit, you know, very impoverished. Just be here for those kids, you know. Spend time with them. Exchange culture. Be a, be a I don't know, if a, a spoiled European can be a role model, but... I did my best, you know, made some amazing relationships with people. And of course, I'm rebuilding myself, Sean. So it was so nice to hear people say such nice things. And I've got a glowing report from the, my six months at this school. All the students filled in a book for me. And the message is, when, when I left the UK, I hit this school running. I was like the old Chris, the commando. I was taking people for like endurance course runs in the forest teaching people skiing they we had to do street fundraising right which some people found really hard and i just went out and smashed it and i said i was going to smash it right i just said watch today there was this 20-year record that someone had made 300 pounds in a day selling postcards and i said i'm going to smash that today right <laughs> we didn't say smash back then but you know what i'm saying and i went out on the street of oslo and i nailed Nine thousand crowns worth and nine hundred quid, nine hundred pounds, selling postcards for, I don't know, thirty p each or whatever. So yeah, I was firing again, mate. You know, able to 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 be myself, able to use all my my learning from what I'd been through for something positive. The kids and I would go fishing. I I I went round the shops in Norway before I went, and I asked, "Can you give some?" sports gear for these children in Africa and they gave me fishing stuff and footballs and this kind of thing so every day I'd rock up in the morning take the kids for sport uh, I painted the classrooms did all this art and again used my my you know my newfound self that was 
told he was a failure at school and I'm painting these amazing murals and stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. In the evening, I'd leave the compound and all the other workers would stay there, you know, being sort of perfect peats. I'll be out straight to the local um, hooch merchant to buy some. This wickedly strong brandy over there. I mean, like sixty percent or something. I'd go and buy that. You know, go and buy some of that. Mix it with. I think I used to mix it with with long life milk. To, it was the only mixer I could get. And then I'd go up, and there was a guy I knew in the village that would sell weed. And I'd just go go and uh, up into the village, and we'd dance around a campfire. To, they'd get the drums out and. <laughs> It was like, you know, anyone that remembers Tarzan from the 70s, that, it's just like that, you know. Mm. It's just like that. And, uh, yeah, it was a it was a good six months. I just created this amazing bond with those kids, Sean. When when I used to come back from the market, say, to do our weekly shop, with a bond that they call it Chapo, which is like a pickup truck, right? And everyone travels around in pickup trucks there. You chuck everything on the back, then you climb on top of it. Then you spend the whole day stinking of whatever it was that you... So if it's like bar- bundles of fish or something, you stink of fish all day. And uh, as the truck left the, the main road to come down through this village, all the kids would be, Chrissy! And they'd just come running from all directions. <laughs> and I'd just go and play some silly, silly, you know sing some silly songs in their tribal language not portuguese and make up these ridiculously you know songs and they just go crazy for it they they love to have fun right one uh, at night i'd go out with a torch and i'd go running off through the bush and hide and the whole village of kids would come looking for me and i'd just flash the torch on my face for sort of three seconds and turn it off again (laughs) then run somewhere else and they'd they'd all be running through the bush going crazy crazy and it did me good sean you know it did me good to be myself um it it did you know it, it did me the world of good and and coming towards the end of that six months over there they asked if i would drive the bus to india and that was just I couldn't believe they'd asked me. It, I secretly wanted to do that job all the time I'd been with this organisation and and uh, driving across the deserts in Pakistan, two o'clock in the morning, it's pitch black, there's a wind, windstorm blowing the sand across the road so you can't hardly see the road. You've got massive attack blaring on the stereo. Everyone else is asleep on the bus. Sometimes I, I drove... One time I drove 36 hours without any sleep. I drove all the way across, uh, I think, from Iran to Istanbul in, in one go, right? Wow. Just loved it. And, uh, High yeah, on life. Just amazing. We got to one spot, it's the Baluchistan Desert, and it's also the home of the Baluchistan Bandits, right? It's this 300-kilometer stretch where you don't stop for anything. One of the um, yeah, one of the diesel pipes on our bus had had fractured, so we were only running on seven of the eight cylinders, which might not sound a lot, but it just throws the whole balance of the engine out. I kept getting out and clamping it down. We we replaced this hose two or three times, but for some reason the vibration of this old bus snapped it every time. Mm. So we got to the beginning of the Bluchistan Desert. We know that there's these merciless bandits ahead. Mm. If they can, they will, you know, 
they don't just stop and rob you. They stop, slaughter all of you. Your bodies are never found because they hide them in the desert and they steal everything you've got. Or at least this is the story. So we, we're parked up at the beginning of this dangerous stretch. This other bus comes in. The driver gets off, comes over. And he's like, right, so what have you got? Like, what do you mean, what have we got? You know, what, what weapons have you got? Um, I'm like looking around this bus and there's like the, the bread knife. Uh, bread knife? He's like, you have no guns? No, we've got no, no guns. Oh. Well, you better follow me. Stay close, right? Oh, shit. We have guns. We have lots of guns. I'm like, okay. Right, guys, we've got to go now. Everybody up. We're going now. That's it. Guy sets off. I'm hammering after him in this 1978 bus that used to move move across the, from one side of the road to the other like this. Right, you know, every corner, every sand dune, Sean, you're like, the, the bandits there? Oh, no, no. Your heart's going like this, right? I got a mile in and that pipe snapped again. The bus went from, you know, we, we, it wasn't fast anyway, but it went from about 60 mile an hour and we were doing 60 or 17 keeping up with this guy who's our, our angel our saviour right so it's ooh, he didn't stop he's not stopping for anything right <laughs> he's gone we crawled the rest of that 279k at 30 mile an hour oh. it took hours and and like I say you know you can't you can't stop and uh, yeah and then you were helping out in a post-prison training facility. Yeah, I just thought on the subject of true crime, I'd, I'd mention that, Sean. I was um, very fortunate to... Um, well, I was very fortunate full stop to do a degree in youth work. And I was at... A, they had like a, a an exhibition one day at the university I was at. And it was all the placement people offering their placements and kind of exchanging with the students. And I got talking to one that it was a big old kind of manor house up on Dartmoor where they would cherry pick young offenders in prison who showed signs that they wanted to put that life behind them. Obviously, 98% was drug related, right? So that's another thing again, you know, we can talk about, you know, Everyone can be a victim, Sean, can't they? You know, these guys come from pretty tough backgrounds. A lot of them had not lo- known any love. They weren't horrible by any means. They were all really nice kids, you know. I was not much more than a kid myself. But, um, yeah, so I got chatting with a guy at this placement fair. And I said, look, can I just give you my CV? This seems right up my tree. And he was a bit offish. He said, yeah, yeah. Uh, got a phone call or an email a couple of days later yeah chris read your cv we'd like you to come we think you can be you know you'll be the perfect man for the job sort of thing so that was really nice to hear and um rocked up there and there's all these starry-eyed lads that have been you know they've done two years three years some of them are just that's all they'd really you know known young offender institutes this kind of thing and I probably wasn't the most professional boundaried person back then, like all this health and safety culture now. Um, so I was able to just say, tell them my story, Sean. You know, I said I, I fell foul of the law while I was in the Marines, like big time, you know. 
I'm very lucky I didn't get sentenced. Had I been sentenced, I'd have been in the boat that you guys are in. But l- listen, I can tell you that like it's it's not worth it. It really is not worth it. And I, then I showed them some photos from my travelling. You'd never believe how much effect that can have on young disenfranchised men, Sean. You know, they were just like gobsmacked. They were just all eyes. And from that moment, I guess I became their mentor, right? You know, the guy that they, they, they looked up up to and one lad went right right wait there wait there wait there he went away he came back with a book right he only had two copies of this book but it was a book on young people's stories and they'd obviously picked people that had really and it was horrible the stories in there the people living homeless in the you know in their local on their local common in a tent scavenging food and, and, and of course all the, the drug problems on top of it it was a book full of these stories and mm-hmm. he was one of the, the young people that was featured in there right and he'd gone away and he got this book and he went Chris I want you to have this my story's number number six you know and uh, yeah it was a big learning curve but of course because I got the marine side of me I'm like right lad football today everyone out there you know, so we're out there, right? You lot, shirts off. You in goal. We played this football match. So right, losers in the lake, and there was this uh, stagnant kind of stagnant lake, <laughs> and uh, so that it was the skins team. The other team lost the match, Sean. Right, like three one or something. And these lads, are like, oh fucking hell! And it's all swearing, right? All sweat swearing and all rollies. And the, they start walking down towards this lake like this. And I just looked at my team and went like that. And everyone just looked at each other excited. And we just ran and burst <laughs> past these guys. And then they realized what we were doing. And they're like, right. And all of us just ran and dived in this in this lake. And it was a real, real magic moment. <laughs> you know? But to get funding for that, Sean, is so hard. This organization was run by a fellow ex-Marine had to close it down can't get the fund they'd rather just put people in prison Sean cost the taxpayer a fortune no rehabilitation really to speak of criminalising people that are pretty much victims in the first place I'm not I'm not saying that's everybody but criminalising addiction as well criminalising addiction um, not a very it's a big business not a very nice system Sean you know so more recent years than you have done your quadruple Ironman. Yeah, we meant, I remember you said to me, what are your plans when I spoke to you last time, didn't you? And I said, I'm, I'm thinking about a quadruple Ironman, and you laughed again. <laughs> yeah. How and, did that uh, go? Yeah, nailed it, mate. Yeah. What kind of training did you have to do for that? Well, I entered my first triathlon as an adult. When you start getting into that life, Sean, and you start eating well and you you know, you put the drugs as far away from you as you, you you can, especially the alcohol, which is a big, big depressant, right? You you enter this different world, right? It's like a spiritual you get like this probably getting a bit deep, but you get like this spiritual buzz and when you get into triathlon, it's like the perfect sport for it because you're doing these three different disciplines, the, the swimming, the cycling, and the running. And, of course, it's quite, 
quite a challenge as well. So that really kind of appeals to, certainly appeals to people like me. So around about this time, I'm starting to get get things really together. I thought I'll enter in my first triathlon, enter an Olympic one. So that's a a mile swim, a 25 mile bike ride, and I think it's an eight mile or a six mile run. Right? Came last. Okay. Got my little boy going, Daddy, you're not going to get on that bike yet. <laughs> I'm trying, son. I'm trying, right? I was so proud, Sean, to come last because it's not about winning. I know this is cliche. It, everything I've done in my life, I've just set my bucket list, gone and done it. I don't care if I'm first, last. Don't care what people think about me. It's irrelevant. I, I, I'm not wearing all the triathlon lycra stuff, right? I'm there in a pair of shorts and an old T-shirt and... I came last and I was really surprised. I didn't realise that a triathlon is so hard. The cycle went on for ages, right? So I thought, right, how can I put this right? I know, do a quadruple Ironman. And I'll do it in eight weeks' time. <laughs> I think it was, it might have been eight, it might have been a bit, bit, bit more. This was July I did the, uh, July... Yeah, it was July I did the Olympic triathlon and came last. So for my 50th birthday, which was September, I thought, yeah, I'd do a quadruple Ironman. And obviously I didn't have much time to train. I made sure I wasn't going to drown, which I thought would be a, <laughs> a good start. Spent an awful lot of money on um, equipment because it's not a cheap sport, right? And yeah, that was it. I booked... Uh, the Plymouth Lido pool, which is this beautiful outdoor pool and swam the first half of my 9.6 miles in there. Then it got too cold because it's September. The, the temperatures just dropped too much for people who haven't got a lot of body fat like me, right? I feel the cold really bad. So um, then I, sw- I just swapped to the indoor pool then and I did the other half of my 9.6 miles indoors. Hopped on the bike, cycled 450 miles over the next uh, four days. Got on the telly. Always good to get on the telly. (laughs) It's for a good cause, Sean. You know, I was doing it for a a charity um, called Rock to Recovery, which is... uh, formed by Jason Fox of the SAS Who Dares Wins program, who's former Royal Marine uh, SBS Special Boat Service. He's formed this uh, charity to help veterans who are struggling with another chap called Jamie, Jamie Sanderson. So I thought, yeah, that could be a, you know, knowing where I've come from in my life, Sean, if I can stop someone committing suicide, it's it's, got to be a worthwhile thing, right? So yeah, then I finished the 450-mile cycle, literally jumped in my car, drove up north to a 100-mile running race that I'd entered. And it was through the, uh, where is it the Robin Hood's race? Sherwood Forest, isn't it? Yeah, it was through the beautiful Sherwood Forest, but it was hot. It was a hot, um, unlike the swim, which was cold, this was really hot. And I set off, yeah, to run 100 miles after swimming 10 miles and cycling 450 and ended up going down so many wrong 
turns on this run because it's a trail run. They mark the trails with bits of tape and stuff, right? If you miss one of those bits of tape, you just end up going miles in the wrong direction. So in the end, when I cross the finish line, I run 108 miles. And uh, I don't like bigging these things up, Sean, because I want everyone to do this stuff. It's not, you know... When I ran a length for the UK, there's nothing stopping anyone doing that, really. You might, you might not want to run an ultramarathon every day, but if, if if you are as big as what you can dream, aren't you? It's just, it really is that simple. But that 108-mile run, it damaged me. It put me so much in the pain cave. Mm. You know, I was just running through sheer pain for the last mm. quarter of it. Um and I haven't recovered. <laughs> when I got out the car at the studio today, I was like, oh my God, all that pain just come, coming back in my hips. Um, so yeah, but no, good result, mate. You know, it's it's amazing. As I said, I came last in my first triathlon and eight weeks later, I did a quadruple Ironman or a quadruple Ironman distance triathlon. It wasn't the official Ironman race, obviously. And uh yeah, I'd just say to anyone, live your dreams. You know, you, you get one life and you can see where I've come from. I've had to make sense of it all myself. And, um, you know, just get out there and smash it. Chris, you're such an easy person to talk to. This has been <laughs> in the all-time longest podcast we've done. Oh, Sean, you're brilliant, mate. Appreciate honestly. you being so generous with your time. And... I think the people who are out there watching this, your stories are just so engaging. And it's great that you took the time to really let us know where you're at right now in your life, I think, as well. I think that was really important um, today. And I'm sure people watching this just find you so inspirational and want to support you. So they can support you by clicking down and subscribing to your YouTube channel. That's it. It's free to do that. It's not, that's not going to cost anybody anything. They can support you by buying your books Chris doesn't make much off his books they are available on Amazon we've got the two books we've got the 40 nights don't and, make anything off them <laughs> and um, so have you got a Patreon or anything like that, that um, people can yeah my, my YouTube channel Sean I, I just want to be honest on it I've, mm. I've learned in life now there's only two things you need you need honesty and you need love yeah. and if you haven't got that you ain't got nothing you know you're gonna you, you're never gonna find that happiness mm. that I'm really lucky to have found so in my YouTube channel, some of it's about the military. I tell what we call dits, which are stories. And anyone who's been in the Marines will tell you there's some unbelievable, you know, there's some very, as mad as Hong Kong was, that there's nothing compared to what happens in the Royal Marines, right? But I tell these stories, but I'm also honest about it, Sean, you know. I'm explaining to people that, you know, the big thing about hero worshipping now the forces isn't there and that's not what that's not what forces people do that's not what we want get a lot of people on my channel oh thank you for your service and it's really kind that they say that Sean but that's just American propaganda right to, to big up their illegal wars it's not it's not you know so I'm I'm honest like this I tell you what the role of the modern soldier is project for new American century you know rebuilding america's defenses if people want to google this it's it's um it's quite quite eye-opening isn't it so some of that um terminology might be confusing for some people are you saying that 
America is using UK armed forces for ulterior motives? Well, you just got to read these documents, right? You know, Project for a New American Century was a American think tank that put to, was put together. And I'm no, you know, I'm not a scholar in this sense, but they basically were the drive behind the Bush cabinet, right? I don't know if they call it a cabinet, but this this push for war that they had, right? You've only got to read their policy documents to see it's all laid out in there. They wanted to further establish American, um, they're going to call it military presence in the world, right? Which, aka dominance, right? In order to do it, they need to do this, that, and that. You can see where they're focusing more now on strategic weapons um, because it looks good in, you know, having dead soldiers on the news isn't good for for public, you know, for their cause, right? So you can see where this documentation is pushing these, um, you know, pushing the agenda. You can you can say the. Um, and of course, you know what did they say? They said all of this, this do- this domination in the world won't come around without a new Pearl Harbor. And then, of course, you know, I think your our friend David Icke would have a lot to say about that, right? Yeah, he you did know? a lot about that. Yeah. Um, and so I don't want young men going and getting their legs blown off in the Middle East by thinking I'm a hero. I'm I'm absolutely wasn't. I was a broken, damaged kid. I joined up. To prove myself, I don't probably prove to my family that I wasn't, you know, the worthless person. I'm so fortunate I never got to do stuff it while I was in combat that I might live to regret because I I think this is obviously, you know, going to cause it is causing a big problem for people, Sean. And yeah, I don't want people signing up off the back of my exploits i just want to be honest this this is the role sorry you, you're not really heroes um you, you need to see war for what it is it's about profit it's about money and it's a, about keeping these psychopaths that have been running this whole goddamn show since what the days of the pyramids you, you're just keeping them in power by by reselling and repackaging this lie and and well you see a dad crying in a pub because he's lost his boy because of those lies that they told, you know, Blair Bush. It it, it breaks your heart, Sean, you know? I agree. Blair and yeah. the Bush crime family, some of the most evil people on oh. the planet, definitely. And if you... I won't talk about it now, but I think if they, you knew the truth about who Tony Blair is or was and why he was able to be what appeared to be blackmailed into this... You know, it, it 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 just gets more disgusting again. So what about this presidential yeah. candidate, Tulsi? She was a Gulf War veteran, and she said exactly what you just said, and she wants to end all the wars in the Middle East and bring all the troops back to America. Well, yeah, I mean, probably a bit too much for this podcast, Sean. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very complex subject. If you want to see a real hero, research Ben Griffin, He'll tell you what war is, what it's about. He'll tell you about muskets that were found, I think, at the Battle of Gettysburg, where when they they excavated the site, they found muskets with like six balls in them, right? And it's where, because it's not a natural instinct to kill your brothers, right? Go to war, you're killing other working class kids to make 
these nutcases even more richer than they already are and they don't care about you you know they do not care about you don't kid yourself all this election nonsense you know it, it's it's all rigged right they found these muskets and they reckon that these people so much didn't want to kill their brothers from across the border that they were just pretending to load you know or load in pretending to fire load in again and then you know they were they were copping a big one and the rifle was getting buried and of course years later it, it's it's kind of evidence that they didn't want to kill each other because human beings don't right and ben griffin is an amazing man ex or former sas should i say that really puts this across well he talks about the indoctrination that's involved in going into the forces how they dehumanize you how they take away these natural feelings of not wanting to but anyway sorry for getting a bit heavy what i wanted to say on my youtube channel there's marines videos i tell some funny stories but you know there's also the, the, the truth is is there i try to put a lot of stuff on there to help people who might be struggling in any way in their life um i have my patreon sean i say to people come on board the team two pound a month so it's not even like a cup of coffee right it i'll tell you now that's the best two pounds you'll ever invest in your life and i don't you know the money it's cost me to come here today i what i'm trying to say is i don't make money from you know it's not about making money off people i just want to share my story i i i had a phone call with one of my chaps the other night suicidal three beautiful children doesn't know where it's going i can pick up phones come on mate what's going on oh what it is no mate don't bullshit me what how much coke you on oh my bag you know every day do you know what I mean? It's like I know I know people, Sean. I know people's stories. They don't have to feel um, like I'm going to judge them because I I, I love everybody. Oh, and I think I always have done. Um, and it's a good little thing we got there on that Patreon. You get to come and meet me. We're going to do an annual talk, drinks afterwards. Get all my books for free in in ebook form, which is you know probably worth the money in itself. You get to um, ask for a YouTube video, although I'm my backlog is a quite quite my backlog of um, requests is mounting, and uh, yeah. So I just suggest to anyone invest in yourself because these psychos aren't they're, they're not going to do it, you know. So all the links to Chris's stuff, and we'll put his Patreon down there as well, and his YouTube channel, and his books are in the description box below this video. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know. Put your questions and comments down there as well. Huge thank you to all the people who have subscribed to the channel. And if you've not subscribed yet, it is free. And the logo to subscribe is in the bottom right-hand corner of this video. Also, huge thank you to all the people who have donated on Patreon, PayPal, and Just Giving so that we can produce these true crime podcasts at this studio quality level with a professional cameraman and sound engineer you really are helping us keep this all rolling out so thanks again brother man yeah yeah yeah, yeah. brilliant well done